Hello, and welcome to another session of the Corona meeting. We are in session 73. We've started uh, a year ago. I'm Viviane Fischer, Dr. Rainer Füllmich, and in Zoom we have Antonia Fischer and Dr. Justus Hoffmann, who were the founding members of the committee, and we founded it with the aim to look into the virus development and the measures taken and uh, we are still at it there has been a lot of findings so far and emotionally sometimes we may get little factual but uh, especially if we see how people suffer under the measures particularly the children and uh, with all that testing in the schools, not everybody sees it as something to suffer with, but it is an extreme limitation to what we have been seeing as um, freedom and physical integrity so far. Lots of things are going on, many details, uh, are things we can't talk about yet today, but we have lots of new things that are happening we have seen the project veritas in america which is a project that has been around for quite a while but with a hidden camera they have pr pr produced a series of protagonists from the pharmaceutical industry and now show things that emerge and things that we wouldn't have thought of before and i think that's going to carry on i think it's going to they're going to publish a new uh, session every day at eight o'clock showing lots of background there was a saying now that human cell residues are to be in the vaccines i think it was the pfizer vaccine and that this is, of course, something that confirms many of the things that we have worked out over the past months. So, the more comes to the light, the harder do the attacks get against those people and institutions who are trying to shed some light in the dark. That applies to our committee, that applies to the party D Basis and others who are not on the governmental line. So people have no other ideas other than saying, well, they're all Nazis and uh, they're somewhere in the dark. So we're going to go into that in some more detail and we're also going to try and get the worst attacks stopped in court. But, Rana, I was thinking that it, it's, uh, it's absurd in a way that it seems to be like a Simon Beckett piece. It uh, seems a social sculpture which is being created out there, so it amuses me at times. Uh, there have to be people who um, think out their speeches, probably think themselves great writing these things. And for example, a person from the South publishing interesting articles. The one who, well, somebody wrote about investigations against her 
Professor Kamara. Nobody ever investigated anything against Prof. Kamara. She was a witness in a processing. Yeah. And that was all to intimidate people, to intimidate the judges and the experts. Uh, that's uh, her and a judge in the family court in Weimar had a, had a search warrant against their house. And uh, now uh, this little uh, journalist from where is he, uh, Würzburg, mine something, says there are investigations against Ulrike and whether she's, in, in, she's guilty of the last 2,000 murders. It is adventurous, and uh, I complained against this, and the post, uh, the newspaper was against this. And then this person has the cheek to apply for a uh, award as a journalist, where they can write, "We are plural," is what it's called, in cooperation with the Constitutional Court in Germany. Say cooperation with allegedly impartial court of uh, the constitution yes and uh, so they are awarding journalists who fight for the basic laws of freedom rights of freedom and he's applying there and if we think that uh, there are very unfavorable points here made by him well he's just abusing people and uh, and well, this has nothing to do with any facts. And so where's the journalism in this? However, we're going to see and find out the details. Um, but I think that's going to be fun, really. Well, it is going to be fun, I promise. There's a new legal expertise by Professor Mooswig, who had also been a guest here with us in the committee. I haven't fully read the uh, expert opinion yet, but we're going to publish it soon. It's about the question or the fact, the legal fact that in Germany, mandatory vaccination would be anti-constitutional. Very great, like everything that Professor Moswick has ever written. I think next week we're going to go into some detail about that. Two guests who had been announced for today will possibly not appear. One is Professor Michael Levitt from Stanford University. That he has to be postponed because for a certain reason he cannot attend and maybe Jim Bush cannot attend. We have already talked to him, but he seems to have a health problem. Maybe he cannot attend. We'll see. It will turn out in the course of the program today. So we may have a slightly shorter session today, but uh, no problem. I mean, people have also accused us of having five, six-hour meetings or sessions, but that's what happens. It's always something that yields a result other than what these uh, journalists, so-called journalists, produce. So, shall we start? Okay, so today we have a guest with us who is with us with a pseudonym because for given reasons he doesn't want to unveil his identity. He is a natural scientist and he has looked into the data which are floating around over the past months and that allow for a lot of interpretation. So I want to welcome Rainer Held. Are you with us? Thanks for the invitation to talk about my work. Great. Uh, you have looked at a lot of the statistical details 
I think you have prepared a little presentation. It would be great if you could take us through this to see and illustrate what is behind the real data in your opinion and what is the presentation. Right, I'm sharing my screen. I hope you can see it. Yes, we can see it now. Since, since last March, uh, well, I'm a natural scientist. For long years, I worked in the education field. And since last March, I have almost completely gone into the analysis of corona data. And I always looked into data, putting them into perspective, visualizing them. And today's uh, session, I've prepared this presentation. And we can start it, can we? I'll start it here. All right. First of all, a few words on the situation regarding sources of data that I have been dealing with. The Robert Koch Institute published uh, this data on the 4th of March 2020, the first um, situation report, which comes almost daily except on weekends. It's on the website of the RKI. On the left-hand side, you can see the daily report. On the right-hand side, you can see the last one dated yesterday. Compared with the first report, there were 262 cases. Now we are at 4,283,378 cases of people tested positive. Since for a long time there was no source of data available except this report, I uh, extracted individual data from these reports, that is individual cases and death cases and everything of individual federal states in Germany and put them into a spreadsheet. And such uh, that, that allowed me to also add the number of people who had recovered, uh, which were an indirect number. And I could also show that we don't have the increasing number of deaths all the time, which is accumulating, but many of the people have recovered. So that has allowed me in the meantime to collect all the data from these daily reports of the RKI, which can be compared with other tables that are published. There are two interesting options regarding comparison, and uh, I'm going to show that in a minute. Recently, these daily reports have omitted a number of things. Instead, a number of things are summarized up in weekly reports that are also analyzed and are also quite instructive regarding the narrative that currently we're saying we only have non-vaccinated people in the hospitals and only non-vaccinated people are dying. I mean, that can be clearly contradicted. And uh, I could show that in the next, as the next step. The data that are provided by the Robert Koch Institute have uh, been complemented over time. For example, here we've got the age of the people who have died. Oh, sorry, that was too much. 
interesting here is that the age median at the beginning was at 82 of the people who deceased and in the recent report we're at 82 again so that's one uh, story one narrative initially they did the death numbers daily then weekly and now they have been eliminated from the reports and they're just kept in a digital hidden spreadsheet then they have added the dv intensive uh, re reporting data in the dv register i copied them manually first but now they uh, a number of specialists are programmers by profession and they're collecting data and everything that we can can be recovered digitally and can be processed digitally what I find interesting, and what is something that has been omitted from the report since July is that for a long time there were reports on clinical aspects, which patients uh, exhibited which symptoms amongst those cases. And what is interesting is that the COVID typical clinical features such as cough, fever, sore throat, pneumonia, loss of uh, the sense of smell and taste, those are the two categories which are put on the right here. I found the ones most relevant for serious or for severe cases. Pneumonia, certainly, and 1% of cases out of 36,500 cases, when there's fever, 729,000 people, but well, with fever, Fever can be more or less, higher or lower fever, and currently when you got uh, flu vaccination, fever is cited as one uh, feature that shows that the vaccination does work. And with an infection, fever indicates that the immune system is fighting against the infection. And if it's successful, then the immune system wins that battle and produces immunity. What I find interesting here is that the 36,655 pneumonia cases is very close to the number that we have in COVID deaths over the last year. Also interesting with this data pool is that there seems to be the need for correcting data time and again. RKI has always uh, introduced this disclaimer into their spreadsheet showing this is preliminary data that can still be amended because of uh, uh, delayed reports and everything. But what's interesting is that there can also be negative corrections, like here on the left. With the cases, Saxony, Federal State of Saxony, 29th of May, 34 cases are booked booked off or one death booked off and then there's uh, minus three again uh, and even more striking more dramatic is the correction in the dv registered data where we have deceased people by day here it's minus 35 and here it's minus 75 death booked back on the 2nd of july Mr. Held, how is that explainable? Is Can that be the case? Do you know that from other statistics that uh, 75 dead people didn't die in the end or, or that they died of something else? How can that be such a big number? That seems strange. 
It is startling indeed. There were press inquiries and there were evasive answers to those. Sometimes they said, yeah, the reporting system has been uh, <clears throat> reviewed and it's an adaptation to the new reporting system. There was one really serious case where more than 1,000 cases were booked back and that actually was because they changed the reporting system. And I find <clears throat> those are things that also happen in other countries, such as in Spain. When they had been through the first wave, 1,600 people, give or take 1,600, can't give you the exact number, were booked back. But the whole wave that included these 1,600 people stays at this dramatic level. And we can see serious figures. And of course, the, the media are not correcting that. So there's quite some need for improvement. Another interesting point is these corrections can also be shown in visual graphs. I've been told that maybe I shouldn't be too much uh, into spreadsheets, therefore I also added some graphs. Here we have the federal state of Saxony with some of the corrections and they don't really uh, turn up here because the negative values are not included here but the light the bright yellow line is the total number of deaths per day and the dark red is the people allegedly dying from covid and the interesting thing is that here we've got the 14th of january that is i have to make sure i find this here we've got a case where the number of death in total is 256 and the number of people dying from COVID for the same day was 260. Uh, so more COVID deaths than people who died altogether. How can that be? One possible explanation is certainly the delay. We can see that these graphs, this uh, peak and the peak with the COVID victims uh, do correlate, however, they're delayed in terms of time. So what may happen is that the COVID cases were reported late and were booked to a later day than the actual day of death. That uh, is partially possible because sometimes even cases from last year are now registered as new cases. So if you look into the red graph and push it a bit to the left, then we certainly have the number below the yellow line. But then when you look into the first wave, how low the number of COVID deaths in total mortality was. And now COVID cases being about two thirds of the overall deaths, then that is a bit uh, incredible. Because, well, there is a certain correlation and we've got lots of deaths. Interestingly enough, this high number of deaths is well, almost carried like a trophy out of some politicians, which I do not understand instead of looking into the background. So what I'm trying is, I try and find the background and the explanation. Regarding, well, Saxony, regarding the case mortality rate, Saxony is very high. However, that means that they are very liberal in counting COVID deaths. At the end of this session, we are going to have a little video 
where we're going to see a number of graphs worldwide with worldwide figures showing that the COVID mortality cases really only started and it's impressive to see after the beginning of the vaccination there was hardly anything before mongolia was a case where they had no covid and it shoots up after starting the vaccination we'll come with that in the end but i wonder mr help how much can you trust the official rkri figures well we're going to see that I can hardly trust anything. I mainly trust the real total mortality numbers. The corona figures are rather, well, it's incredible that in Saxony you would have uh, almost 10% of all death being corona death and in other places, other federal states, it may be 0 0.3, 0.2% of all deaths. So there are differences that are not that are beyond explanation. So you would really need a detective to find out what the hell are people doing there. In Switzerland, there's some information as well, which I'm going to turn to in a minute, that may be a bit instructive and show you what kind of manipulation can be used to do that. Can I interrupt? There was this phenomena that people who had a positive test and died six months later and they were counted as corona deaths. I don't know if it was six months or something like that. I remember that this was the explanation why suddenly from the year before people appeared in the corona mortality statistics. I've got one concrete explanation on that in a minute with a later slide. I'll turn to that when the slide comes, right? Regarding the data of the Robert Koch Institute, it has lots of gaps regarding the number of tests, for example. It's once a week that we get the total number of tests and there's no distinction between uh, quick tests, uh, rapid tests, antigen tests, PCR tests. They just give you a number of tests. That's it. And uh, the age of the people who've died is also something that is uh, not published. Lots of data are hidden. Switzerland is way more open in giving information. There's a daily report that you can download as a CSV, uh, CSV file with 53 individual files per day. And regarding vaccinated people, there are special data sets. For vaccinated people, we've got the death rate of vaccinated persons. We've got vaccinated persons in, persons in total, hospitalized, all in great detail. And then the question comes whether the vaccination status is always recorded properly. Nowadays, the vaccination ratio, uh, the, the share of vac vaccinated people and hospitalized people is higher. Initially, it was just a bit but we assume that initially the vaccination rate was low or was not checked at all in uh, hospitalized people. And what's also interesting about Switzerland is there's so much data that politicians and court just do not take that into account. I'm working with a Swiss lawyer and on the basis of my data, he uh, filed 13 cases in court. The courts just couldn't care less about that data. 
they just say, yeah, the Institute DAG in Switzerland says that's the situation, that's how we decide. So they just ignore the facts and data. And politicians decide without taking any analysis into account, without looking at data at all. As a first concrete point, I'd say, uh, let's turn to the current epidemic emergency situation where measures are getting stringent and more stringent and vaccination pressure is increasing. Uh, this is a classical thing in, in all my works, possibly. You can see the PCR tests here, the PCR test cases, that's the blue bars, and then in green you've got the number of tests per week. And you can see that with these tests, with more tests, you can control the number of positive uh, cases. That's not really a good method for uh, making some statements that are clear in epidemiology. A constant test rate would be more helpful there. And then you would see way better whether there's any breakout anywhere. The number of tests, well, 73 million in Germany, is 89.4% of the population. However, that's a moderate value. Austria is currently at 990%. That means, in the meantime, they have tested every single Austrian 10 times over, statistically speaking. And regarding the current situation, I find this most instructive. Here, We've got the orange line, that is the number of deaths in calendar year 21. And in green, we've got the average death rate of the previous years. Red, you've got the COVID deaths, and the blue columns are the case numbers. The interesting thing is that we've got the year with, more, with higher mortality initially. So the mortality rate was higher, and of course that also correlated with the COVID deaths. Then there was a phase of about eight weeks with lower mortality than average. And in terms of epidemiology, I think Mr. Dr. Vodak can explain that. That was ex expected after that over-mortality. And here we still have the higher COVID numbers that are still higher, but they don't really uh, make a difference here. If you subtract them, then we'd have mortality in a range that is unrealistically, unrealistic for the German situation. And then interesting is this crossing point between these graphs. And then from there on, we've got mortality higher than in the previous year's average. However, when you look at the corona death numbers, which are close to zero here, that extra number here cannot be explained by COVID at all. And what is totally unreal is that number of uh, cases, the third and fourth graph regarding the cases, that is not reflected by the deaths at all. And that's interesting. When you look at Germany and you change over to Austria, in Austria, you don't see what has changed at all if you disregard the case numbers. In Austria, we also have over-mortality, then a shorter time of under-mortality, and now permanent over-mortality without that being explained by corona. And the cases are 
totally independent. How, how can that be explained? Do you have an idea? If we expect, if we see very high case figures, case numbers, and these are corona infections that they represent maybe only positive tests, we don't know, but uh, let's assume, so if we have high no cases of, high numbers of cases, that should be reflecting in the mortality rate. Why is that not the case? Well, with any natural disease, it would be reflected in the death cases. Otherwise, one couldn't talk about a threat. One can say that we've got people with long COVID, people are tired for a long time, which you can also have after the flu, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and I think that some pieces are also tired of all this battling with the everyday situation. And that can also lead to a difficult health situation. So the problem of those death numbers, well, Currently, people are trying to put very much into hospitalization and say, oh, we've got lots of young people being hospitalized now. But there, too, we'd need to see if we've got younger people in intensive wards with corona, then uh, you would also see a certain death rate there. Because corona in in intensive care has a high death rate. But the interesting thing is now, when you switch over to Switzerland again now, since calendar week four, there has been permanent under-mortality in Switzerland. So striking. And in this phase of under-mortality, they have passed new laws, new obligations, obligatory wearing a face mask in schools and everything. And when you compare it back here, the waves in Germany, Austria, Switzerland, the wave of cases is, is, is separate from the from the rest. It depends on the test strategy and the cases caused by the testing. And I did it for the whole of Europe. I did the analysis. And I can show you about 20 European countries where the timing of the cases is exactly what you can see here. See, it looks like a testing strategy. Yeah, it's got to do with test strategy and not with a pandemic event. Because it, it couldn't happen at the same time. There would have to be a delay because a virus migrates from one region to another and further then. And then you would have some hotspots here and there. But the whole, whole story appearing at the same time all over Europe, that's a matter of the test strategy. So you're referring that at the end of the year, or beginning of the year, there was an over-mortality. How, what are the figures it started with in the year? Could that be in correlation with the vaccination or the start of the vaccination? Or is that not realistic if we are at such a high level? that high rate in Switzerland, Austria, Germany, very high in Switzerland, is the is winter mortality. Winter mortality starts around October. We had no vaccination there yet. I haven't got that graph in my presentation where I've uh, gone back into last year. No, I've got one later on. So we've got high mortality beginning in October right into January in all countries. 
So the vaccination uh, as such uh, has certainly no effect in that stage where the vaccination rate was very low. So it's more interesting there. I also did something on Malta and the Seychelles Islands where the vaccination rate is 80% and higher. There it is clearer and there you can see what you said initially. You can see that the moment that vaccination starts, you've got COVID cases and COVID mortality jumping up. And an interesting thing is, well, when you look into these graphs, there's one thing they do not show. You have absolute mortality numbers. And the problem is, when you look at the development of uh, inhabitants, of the population development, I've uh, uh, broken up the population into two age groups, up to 79 and 80 years and older. From 2012 to 2020, the population of people over 80 has increased by 1.7 million, give or take. And people under 80 have increased by 1.2 million. So a different development of these two groups, especially when it comes to the number of old people who are more, who tend to die more. And that's also shown in the mortality rates. In order to show that, you have to correlate the death rate and the population structure, which I've done here. I've taken inhabitants, number of deaths, and, and here I've got the according death rate, that is the percentage of people of that age group who've died. And now, if I put in a ranking, I don't go into the absolute death numbers, but the death rate, share of the population that died. And that ranking goes from one as the worst case. We had it here in 2015 up to 2010 with the highest uh, value. So we're just looking into the time up to calendar week 38, which is comparable up to end of September this year. And for all years, I've done the death numbers up to the 26th of September and put them into perspective, into relationship. And then 2020 is the best year here, and 2021 is the third lowest rank. And 2021 was the best value for people over 80, over the last 10 years. And what I find astonishing is that no politician has ever said, well, this is a success of our vaccination strategy. We've protected the old people. None of the old people are dying. Nobody has dared say yeah, that, but maybe nobody dared that because we have got 39,000 COVID deaths that time. And with this good uh, death rate, you can hardly explain how, why have 40,000 people died from COVID. That's about 10% of the total number who are dead. How can 10% have died of COVID? And that's a phenomenon that we've seen in uh, Saxony as well, that the number of COVID deaths in total deaths is very high. But when you've got a death rate that is the best, which means the lowest of the last 10 years, then 
corona can't be an extra killer because then all other death numbers would have to be reduced by that number and how can that be if you've got people who are not treating if you've got hospitals who are not treating people in hospitals i've got a an acquaintance who is 23 years old and who had a positive uh, diagnosis of cervical cancer and had to wait for nine months to get an, uh, a biopsy. So that can hardly explain why so few people have died. So the COVID numbers are really rendering themselves incredible. That's a very important point because it illustrates that on one hand in the age group 0 to 79 we have the lowest death rates since 2012 so how are they going to argue for a special uh, letality of the covid and even worse with the 80 years and older the lowest since 2012 can't reason that the covid or coronavirus is very lethal doesn't match. Mr. Held, can I ask then these 40,000 people who did not die in addition? They can only be part of the normal death rate. Yes, but uh, let's assume they wouldn't have been there and these 40,000 would still be alive. Then we'd, without Corona, then we'd have a death rate of some 5% or whatever that be, or 6, six point something. That's not realistic at all. But then doesn't that create a certain expectation, what you can expect? I mean, here we're always between 7 and 8%, 8.2 being the highest value. So those outliers well, can't, can happen because of something else, can't they? Couldn't, could it be overcompensated by the, say, false treatment, false of whatever stress in stress and treatment that uh, didn't keep people alive? That wouldn't shed a very light, good light on our medical system if not treating people leads to a lower death rate. Uh, but I don't want to say this at this point here. <clears throat> We'll have to ask Wolfgang Wodak about that uh, when it comes to hospital uh, pathogens that <clears throat> allegedly account for 25% of death in hospitalized people. <clears throat> so that might be the case, but I think for that we would need to look into that data and medical background in more detail. Well, a freak out year uh, that we only have 6% um, taking off the corona deaths that is not thinkable under normal conditions, is it? Now, I, I think uh, to, to do the fact check when people often say this cannot be and uh, open everything, throw away the face masks, I have to point out one thing that the time up to September is covered here. And the bad thing last year started in October, so the bad winter deaths are not included in this statistics. And here I've got the same picture in a graph, the percentages of people who've died. So to be honest, one has to look into that. And something that is still to come, um, I've got the death course statistics completed for 2020, and it's part of the last part of my presentation, so we can also look into that later on. 
What about the death cases, uh, death causes in individual areas? Now, here, a quick one for Austria. In Austria, we just saw the death rate being higher than the last year's average, so worse than in Germany or Switzerland. So here, the ranking of this year is in the medium, rank 5, rank 7. Certainly nothing awfully dramatic, but the years around 2012, 2013, 2017, 15 were worse. But that means, from my point of view, that the Austrian Corona policy, which is even more restrictive than in Germany or Switzerland, uh, well, I'm not too happy about ours, but I think that it's uh, regarding Corona and the overall lethality, it's not really successful. And here too, the, well, by the way, we've got a different age structure here. In Austria, the death rate is uh, quoted by 65 years and older, 65 years and younger. Therefore, we've got the uh, mortality rate of the older group at around 3%, not 7%. But here again, we've got the 3,772 corona deaths are not really explainable. They might lead to a higher ranking, but uh, no, it's not really realistic, mind you. And Austria has this very high testing rate of about 1,000% of the population by now. So in Austria, the percentage values, we've got them in a graph here, and the 2.97% of people over 65 years are not a dramatic peak, but neither are they something that would support Mr. Kurz's statement that everybody knows a corona victim. Well, and finally, we've got Switzerland again here with their excellent death rate for this year. Here we can see a 12-year comparison. This year's ranking 11th and 12th, respectively. So, the phenomenon in all countries shows that there's no such thing as a serious threat to public health with high death rates. Here you can see the graphical visualization, the current death rate of people over 80 in Switzerland, with the lowest value since 12 years. And here again, a cautious remark that in Switzerland, the death began in October only, and that is something that will come in the analysis. Now, can we look at whether Corona accounts for an extra share of death numbers? I went a special path to analyze that question. By the way, uh, this is something demanded by the World Health Organization from 2001. You always have to break down the death rates to the population groups of a standard population. Germany 
currently has a death rate of 11.7 per 1,000 people. Switzerland is at 8.5, 8.6. So every newspaper should say, oh, terrible, why don't we all emigrate to Switzerland? Because people are dying a lot more in Germany than in Switzerland. But that death rate can only be compared when you look at the population structure. And that's what I'm going to do here. I've got the inhabitant numbers of 2018 and 2019 and 2020 into age groups of 10 years each. And then we can see the difference of inhabitants. <clears throat> and then I took the death rate of the respective age groups, added those, and I could then extrapolate the expectation when we've got the death rate of 2019, how many deaths would we expect? So, if I'm an undertaker and uh, if uh, 2019 is over and I want to check whether I need to restructure or invest something or whatever, I want to look into what am I expecting in terms of death numbers for the next year. So I could extrapolate that based on the development of the population. So we would expect between 2019 and 2020 that in 2020 we'd have 24,984 more deaths. And then I've got the total number of deaths, the total of number of deaths in addition. We can see in four age groups fewer people have died than in 2019, and in the other age groups more people have died. And in total 46,000 people have died more than in 2019. However, compared to the 24,900 that I would expect based on population development, it's only the difference that's 22,901. So, again, I'm comparing how much is my current value, the actual value, uh, deviating from the expected value. And what I can see is that in the three younger age groups, fewer people have died than expected. And in all other age groups, uh, for the whole calendar year 2020 and 2019, for all other age groups, more people have died from 2019 to 2020. And again, we've got the question, 43,000 or almost 44,000 COVID cases. Does do 43 COVID, 43,000 COVID cases explain a plus of 21,000? Because that would mean that otherwise we'd have minus 22,000 other death causes. <coughs> So, here, COVID would be an over-exaggerated value. And the interesting question is, one has to compare several years. I did the same from with 2018. 2020 compared with our bad flu year 2018. I've got some very bad memories of 2018. Somebody from my direct environment died there, an infant, a child. And that year, all age groups 
were higher than in 2020. So 2020 was 16,814 below the expected value based on 2018. It's only the age group 90 years and older were higher than expected and in 2018. And that would certainly not explain 43,000 corona death extra because that would overcompensate all other uh, death cases that would have uh, sunk by 27,000. So what I can see with people over 90, let's take another year, 2017. Uh, never compare with 2018, people say. Compare with 2017, the picture is similar. We've got two age groups here with more than the expected mortality. Again, regarding the death rates from 2017. From my point of view, this is a clear evidence. If I take the expected mortality and the real mortality is that COVID cannot be considered an extra cause of death, but it's part of the general cause of death. So that's the phenomena that uh, there many of these had a different illness and COVID came on top of that or they were counted wrong? Yes, we've got something on how to record people's case, uh, causes of death, how people are made COVID cases. There are a few interesting details about that as well. And now something that we've compared year by year by year is something I've compared for the whole period here. The lower third year is the percentage of the death rates that we've looked into individually for the whole period and the ranking per age group. And over this 10-year um, period, 2011 to 2020. And here we can see the absolute numbers that are used in the press and politicians. They are proudly presented. Oh, we've got so bad in bad mortality rates, so many people dying, it's all so terrible. So that seems to be the success concept. So here we've got four age groups that are rank one with the lowest death rates. But when you take the percentage of the age group, then the 90 plus age groups is here ranking second worst. But the worst is, however, 2015. And now all these death rates of all age groups can be aggregated into one overall equivalent by saying now that death rates and so on, so many percent. Uh, let's relate that to the population number of 2020, depending on the age group. <clears throat> what is the total uh, share they have. And then we've got 2020 that has rank 8 out of 10, so the third best. And we just said that 2020 was not a bad year. 2021 is not a bad year either. So that shows us the possibility that we can compare with other European countries too. I did it with all European countries. I did it in age groups of five years. I did it in one year age groups. And the interesting thing is 
we always end up with the same ranking that is very similar to this one. This age groups of 10 is instructive enough. Now, all these numbers can be puzzling, and uh, I'll, I'm going to try and make them graphic now. So there's two age groups that I focused on, the uh, 80 years old. We see the blue line is the development of the population, and in uh, orange, the number of deaths with 378,000 with a maximum value in 2020. But in the percentage of the population with 7.79% are in the best second, second best value over the time. So if the media <coughs> say that they take an undertaker who stacks the coffins saying there's so many people dying, they are quite right, because in that year, in that age group, the undertakers had 28,000 people more to bury. But was that to be expected differently? Looking at the development of the population, there's nearly 300,000 at the top here, and that make up a big part, and that um, explains the plus at the bottom. Now looking at the 90-year-old people with a similar picture with 24.3%. Here the 90-year-old people were mostly affected and so the question is what role does the situation that uh, we created with the corona measures to them? And what did that do in the nursing homes and so on? What effect did that take on the death rates? Uh, where probably most people, many people were affected in care homes. This is the time span looking from up to September this year with a more detailed look and until week 38 we have the ninth uh, best figure since 2012. So until uh, autumn, this is the figures that we've just seen in the chart before. So now, as we've just mentioned before, the different uh, causes of death, Destartis published a report on the causes of death and we missed for a long time uh, that there would be an updated report. It was well hidden, but we found it now 100% of the death certificates have been evaluated in these statistics of the uh, death rates with deaths which was published at the end of September. And it's interesting to look at the analyses here. I have highlighted here, they have focused on the cases of COVID-19. So there is a few things that I picked out, maybe we should read it all. So all together, um, 39,715 cases, COVID was the cause of that in um, 7,000 
um, the preliminary um, COVID was registered as a uh, as a disease, and in 39,000 cases, it was um, the cause, and in 8,000 cases, it was a death with corona. So 38 of these, 83% uh, of these cases died um, on a disease other than COVID. In 17%, these people died with COVID, um, but on a different, due to a different illness. So this is what we can read looking at the death certificates. I've talked to a doctor about these certificates, but I don't want to go into detail here too much. We'd have to have someone speak to us to to see how it is registered, how the COVID is registered on the death certificates and how it finds its way into the statistics. I don't know. For me, this looks quite a high figure of people who died of COVID because, um, obviously, because no post-mortems have been done in such a big number of cases. And looking at the point at the bottom, three states in Germany that saw COVID as a co-illness could not register these. So I expect these three countries or states to basically take COVID as a basic disease. Um, and depending on which ones there were, that may lead to a statistical error. So in these states, uh, the cases were died, were died of COVID. And also interesting to look at the suicide numbers. The suicide numbers in 2020 of the preliminary and not complete assessment was 9,237, slightly above 200, uh, 2019 with 9,041. That's a figure that we can take and one would have to look at a bigger number of years to see what was going on and what age groups were concerned. So that would need more drilling down into detail. The table to be downloaded of this is a big heap of figures, calendar months at the end and the last column we see the total figures. It's interesting to see the red highlighted lines here. <coughs> This is from the original as well, which is the differentiation of COVID-19. So there is a cover of uh, key numbers for special forms of deaths. And some codes have been created or reserved for COVID noun, differentiating of COVID proven by laboratory tests and uh, find clinically, epidemiologically, and COVID as a co-sickness with laboratory tests and without laboratory tests. So interesting is here to see that of these 39,718,248, 
are not proven by a test. And it's interesting to see this here in the highlight view, the differentiation as COVID as a cause of death. And here the definition of the case plays a role. What creates a COVID virus case? So in general, and as a case of death, one is the clinical uh, image uh, or picture, a clinical a test or a confirmation, and the epidemiologic um, test also applies if someone is just in the environment of an infection. So somebody who dies in a nursing home, somebody dies with a positive test, and in the same time, within two, three days, three other people die, then due to the environment they are in, these are counted as COVID cases without a test being done to these individuals. But strange, isn't it? Yes. I think, wasn't it Dr. Brian Bardis who mentioned that from, from Ardis in Texas? We heard it from him that obviously people who had no COVID symptoms whatsoever, but who died, were then classified as COVID deaths if they were from an area where there were COVID deaths. <coughs> and honestly, that's absurd, isn't it? Yes, and in the clinical aspects, uh, acute respiratory um, symptoms play a role here. So a slight uh, sore throat creates COVID or COVID crease and um, loss of taste and olfactory disease. I've had this in when I had a uh, flu and uh, death due to illness, that's a, cling a clinical diagnosis. So very interesting to see how the cases are defined here, allowing a large spectrum of possibilities. So I have some concrete cases where this was confirmed to me on an individual basis what is behind this. So from the cause of death, I have taken the ones of the respiratory illnesses and the sicknesses of the respiratory system here in 2018-2019. And in this correct category, we have two subcategories with is uh, flu and pneumonia, pneumonia and chronic diseases. And although uh, this the Sentinel tests show that this is nearly vanished, there is a continuous case here. And here we see that there's not different, no differentiation of the uh, flu and pneumonia um, sees that the bigger part is pneumonia here but that this is often accompanying COVID-19. The question is, um, what are the cases here taking out COVID? It's interesting to see that we look at the influenza weekly reports, which I have here from all the um, weeks and the individual reports where we have a mandatory 
reporting from influenza. And here it's interesting to see that the cases from January, February, March, we are nearly 60,000. April, it drops to 2,600. And then we have uh, very, very low figures that somehow um, need to be correlated to the constant case numbers at the top, which is difficult to do. And the interesting point here is, of course, for each individual category, you can look at the in, uh, absolute figures and compare them. The interesting point is how many corona deaths do we have? That's the key figure here for this. That's only COVID-19. The RKI has different formats of reporting. I've talked about the daily report. The daily report uh, as of end of 12 of December 2020, 33,071 COVID cases had died. Now we have Excel files that uh, list them by date of death. So these are still being done for 2020. They are still going up. On the 2nd of April, they were 33,338. Now, at the end of September, they have reached at 43,969. Compared to the 33,000 in the situation reports, it is a plus of 10,800. <clears throat> so now we know why in 2021 there were post-reportings. To keep the statistics matching, if I compare the two situational reports and the Excel file, today in 2021, the death rates, um, according to the death date, are below the ones that are there in the report. So now we are still having reports coming in for 2021 to match the statistics. They are now listed as new deaths and they determine our restrictions in the public life for this year. And the causes statistics here on the certificates, obviously there's uh, 39,718. So we are talking about a percentage of process data 100%. So if I look at these figures, comparing them in the different categories, then we have COVID here as the new category. The other causes of death, we don't see so, so much of a difference in the absolute figures. So a bit of a minus here in the infectious and parasitary diseases, a plus in uh, health and food related in the psychological issues, heart and vascular systems is between the two, breathing system has a clear minus, so not so much to be seen here. And if I show this in the table, in green we see the categories that are despite higher figures with a minus, Red are the ones that have an increased number, but we have seen, according to the analysts so far, COVID-19 is not an additional cause of death. So this is why I looked 
Uh, the difference of the causes of death in the annual comparison. And here I looked into the share of the different categories in the overall figures. And I calculated the percentage of these um, 984 total. So we see the high figures here cardiac diseases, including uh, stroke and heart attack, new uh, development of cancer have high figures, and uh, the um, digestive system and COVID with 4% has taken a new ranking here. And if I look at the difference between the years, comparing them through to 2020, what are the uh, the diseases that gave their share to COVID? So this is sorted by the diseases that were most prominent, or had the biggest minus compared to 2018. So the three categories, uh, heart and uh, vessels, respiratory and cancer, have um, dropped by 3.77%, nearly adding or nearly totaling to the 4% that is COVID now. So maybe this is a bit... Uh, Interesting to see this here. It seems to be a reallocation of causes of death towards COVID. And here we have someone who has a heart attack and the positive test is a COVID case. So this way the heart system can have not been counted as a cause of death. <coughs> Is that in line with the assumption by other scientists with whom we talked that, that there's a redefinition of existing diseases or causes, at least partially? Yeah, we see that in the picture here. What are the shares of the individual causes of death? By the way, the interesting point is that I found the same picture in Austria and here we see the same image. In Switzerland, I'm waiting for the figures, but the Swiss data will only be published in November. Is there any uh, possibility of uh, getting this statistic on a different route, for example, by checking the registrar's offices and their data? Do they report anything extra that you could access? To look at the causes of death, is that it? Yeah, causes of death or just people who've died because, um, well, cause of death anyway, but also numbers, including uh, reporting late reports, it's a bit puzzling that there's this, uh, well, it, it seems to be totally non-tangible in a way. Well, that is what your work is and what 
clarifies your work to talk to the experts. I'm networked with people from Journal Pflege für Aufklärung, which are doctors that report from intensive care units. And it's interesting, actually, to get most input of the instructions which are given in the clinics and the people who issue the death certificates. What are the criteria and what's the instructions that they work on and how they complete their uh, certificates? I think that's an important input to work with. And uh, what can you read of the, out of those instructions? Unfortunately, I don't have access to that. I know that this network does some research work, but one would have to talk to these people directly to find out what is accessible, what can be used, and how can this information be used to work with. The dilemma is that everybody who published data is called a uh, conspiratory theorist. And um, I um, have published some of my videos on YouTube because my principle is really just to show the facts and this is why I've not been deleted and I leave the conclusions for doctors and lawyers and so on to draw their conclusions. It's a dilemma, however. I've also talked to a Swiss journalist and he said it is very, very difficult. He writes and writes and he keeps on writing things um, where there should be an outcry but he said people simply nodded off. They have become wary of the figures. Yes, if you fire too many figures at people, they don't see the message for all the trees. Same with me. If in the end you've got a thousand grass trying to explain something or hammer something into my head, it's more difficult for me to grasp that. Some people may take it up differently, but for me, uh, as, for me, three or four clear sentences make more sense. Uh, you also commented on the results emerging from your figures, and that's the moment when I say, oh yeah, I find that in there. But for me it's easier to understand, well, say one or two graphs, and then get an explanation on that, then to get a hundred graphs, and being asked to draw my conclusions from that. I, I can't, some people can. I'm not really a, a numbers person, at least not when it comes to graphs and statistics. I hope that I didn't overdo it then. The point is, of course, and I wanted to make this clear to show and uh, lead you to prove that COVID is not a plus in uh, related to that the death what, rates. That is what became very clear including in those passages in your presentations or your points, where at the first glance you would see a plus, but then when you look in detail, there's none. So that is clear enough indeed. I wrote that as one key message, that the COVID mortality is not any specific special mortality, but it's to be explained by some existing diseases being relabeled. And in principle, we could also see that these intervention paradoxes doesn't seem to be working out. 
if we say that the constellation is that we have in Switzerland or Austria, where there's more strong measures, we have not a more positive picture than in Germany. On the contrary, I did the analysis for the whole of Europe. And I, I would need to show you another presentation, but I think for, day, for today it's enough. The point is, when you look at the death rates, which I did for all European countries, and you look into the previous year as one area and you subtract the COVID casualties, then there are countries where the cases without corona showed over-mortality. And this clear over-mortality is most pronounced in those countries where the measures were most stringent. Belgium, France, Spain, those are the countries where over-mortality without corona is extremely high, in spite of those countries having the most stringent measures of all. But that should tell us maybe it's not uh, because, but despite. That and would be the approach. And uh, I've also done a study on South America. And there are some countries where people are, well, where people were not allowed to leave their homes for three quarters of a year. And I personally know people from Argentina who live in a single room apartment with one window that looks at a wall of a house. And they were locked up in their place for all the time. And that's certainly nothing that's good for the mortality rate. It's something that brings forth depression in old people. Well, I know the situation in old folks' homes for old people, for people with handicaps, and I think there's no question mark behind the hard work that people have to do there especially with regard to the extra work they have to do because of Corona. But I do see a big problem when it comes to how to supply those people, how to take care of them. And another situation before Corona, where people would ask you, uh, would ask whether you can go outside with your relatives. And yes, of course, you can also take a walk with somebody. Why not? They like it. But um, we've got no resources for that. Well, that's one of the many areas when we have to reset the society. That's where we have to look at, especially how we treat the elderly. Over many, many years, people have just been pushed away. And that led to just uh, people um, to be lucky when that went to institutions where there were engaged people, committed staff working, taking care, really. Yes, initiative by individual people is always a topic of itself. I went to a demonstration recently and uh, spoke there, and somebody said, I'm a driver in uh, driving services for handicapped people, and I just can't live with it. We've got people who shake their head and bang their head against the wall and in order to get rid of their rid of their face mask and they can't get rid of the face mask and usually that's a reason for people not to wear a face mask if somebody's not in the position to take that mask off himself or herself if it's a problem for him or her 
Nevertheless, those people, those handicapped people are forced to wear face masks. And those are things that are difficult to, to, to live with. I, ha I have a question uh, relating the vaccinations. Maybe not the vaccinations alone, but if we look at the corona developments currently, is, are there any signals pointing towards something that I've talked to with somebody else doing statistics the other day, and they said that they could see a certain correlation between the states with more vaccinations in the western parts of Germany, that there is more deaths. Can we see this in the figures? How, how much lag do we have for the figures that we are looking at? Part of my team uh, broke away and this has been doing vaccination damage analysis in very much detail. And the Telegram channel is Corona data analysis. They do regular publications of the analysis and there are interesting phenomena that you can see there, but I cannot really describe them spontaneously because that would require some of the experts to come in. <coughs> so that is, well, the more you go into the details uh, by individual districts, by individual cities, you could show way more concrete things than just in global statistics. Because, of course, the data situation is always a problem. Germany has got the Paul Ehrlich Institute that has only has not reported part of their own data to the European Medical Association Authority. And they are assorting the data. So the data situation is really problematic. And in the evaluation of Swiss Medic, Switzerland has reported 145 cases, but they said since the beginning of their reporting, they have written that in no cases has there been a proven correlation with vaccination. But that would be the task of that institution, to check for that causal relationship. But they say, okay, I cannot prove that interrelation. So that is something that uh, we would owe those people who are not vaccinated yet in order to make a proper risk assessment. I think that's the idea of collecting all the data, isn't it? Of the registers and things that these death rates after the vaccination are put in to find out if things are going off track and if we do see uh, that they uh, may do, and everybody with some common sense may see this, and they would have to look into the causes, and postmortems would need to be done. That's much overdue. I have a question, Mr. Held, that if you quote that driver from the um, the um, people, uh, if he if you talk to him or he he listens to us that's obvious he should stop and take the mask off these people somebody tries to shake it off by the head they ha they need help 
Probably, um, if he does that and he reaches his destination, he's going to be kicked out of his job if he does that. That's the situation. And uh, to look at the problems and, 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 and do something about it is what I see. And I don't understand how the politics, uh, politicians and the media can publish these figures and say it's all so bad and uh, then boast about it without saying that we look at what is so bad and try to create relief. I don't see that being done. We're saying we have a cause and we know what it is. That's only one cause that we have. And we don't try to change it, to um, look at the changes. And that is something that I see with some concern looking at the upcoming winter. We are going to look at these figures day by day. And if I say people, there's something off the road, what's going on but this communication is not taking place so that the statistics and the people roll out things and nobody's interested in what is rolled out and what data is presented do we have any findings or can we assume that the data are processed and uh, possibly also reviewed by the statistical office or by the Paul Ehrlich Institute or Robert Koch Institute that they do the analysis and then it just ends up in nowhere when nobody presses the alarm button. When you see things happening, could anything be optimized? Is that the story or are they just not doing those intensive analyses? I work fully free without any people giving me order or paying my salary just to work for my own findings and share this with others the institutions in the rkri and the others that have these statistics of course they are paid by a uh, by someone and that's the uh, minister of health and i have no concrete idea but i think there is going to be concrete tasks um to serve that reporting format or the other. I don't know if there is a kind of free spectrum of analyses which everybody can do for themselves to see, look, I found something, please look at this uh, and, and listen to me. Um, I don't know if these people simply see themselves as suppliers of data to a system that tells them what to do and uh, are not allowed to think for themselves. I don't know. But that's the same questions that we ask ourselves when we look at it. That should be the question for those people who have already collected those, those figures. And it's, it's a matter of time until it bangs. But we've been asking for a long, long time, how much more time does it take? Because there's something that you can see here. Why? How long does it take until the official side says yes? Or can we expect that the official side is not interested in enlightenment? Well, there is one difference between my work and the work at the, uh, which are the professional statistics of the way of working. Usually automatic data analysis is programmed and then 
that is uh, reported in some uh, automatically in some reports and the difference is that i looked at each individual figure uh, so there's a lot of manual work in this and when i look at it manually i uh, see these things i think that's a difference that uh, is not necessarily a fault of the statistics um, not looking at it but it, the question is to find to come to a new conclusion they would have to change their programming and for that they have to have a new inquiry i think this is maybe a part of the systematic problem uh, to see these problems and find them then one would have to define the question, saying, I may have some doubt about this or that, might be puzzled why that happens. So if we don't question the data, if I just take what the system gives me, then I generate those situation reports, and um, there may be the decisive points where I didn't drill down. Maybe I can jump in with a little comment here. I have, in, in the beginning, when we started all this, the pandemic, then I kept on looking at the data supplied by the RKA, by, for example, and there was hardly any contradiction. It was continuous, and that developed. But this year, for example, or the longer it's going on, the more frequent it happened that things don't didn't match up. So in the beginning, things that didn't match up was something like saying of the management and the data that the uh, well-working people doing their work were looking at the monitoring of the respiratory diseases for example or the listing of the germs involved in this and then in april it started to look they just started to look for coronaviruses that was not the covered before and these contradictions that i noticed show quite clearly that management in these institutions want to have certain statements and they don't want to have other statements and the people working in the lower ranks still try to do their work the best they can. That in the cause of death statistics we've seen these reports that suddenly figures vanished and they were changed later on to a considerable extent and the results to make the results match the political statement so i think the people who are trying to do their work scientifically clean are under pressure to make the um, findings match the political um, policies and in the uh, vaccination statistics it's going to be more clear i think because the consequences for everybody involved is going to be much stronger yeah mr held thank you for giving us that overview i think there will be some questions coming up after that and we'll talk about it again either well, you said you we, we can have a four-hour talk either that or if we have some concrete questions on some concrete matters, we might do it in a new session. Yes, yes. I'd be happy to do so. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Okay, bye.
Now, for a very long time, Herbert Ludwig has waiting and I was looking forward to talk to him again. Herbert Ludwig, and again, I have to excuse me, you had to wait for a long time in Zoom, but maybe it was interesting what has the Held, Mr. Held has told us. <clears throat> Mr. Ludwig, are you with us? Mr. Ludwig, are you there? Are you in the Zoom? Can you hear us? He can't be seen. So it seems he, is, he must be out with the Zoom. Then shall we take Wolfgang Wodak first? Corvin, maybe you can try to get Mr. Ludwig back in. Wolfgang, 20 documentation from different uh, um, collaterals of the vaccination. You are showing what was done, what the treatment was, and you arrange it. What can you tell us about that? Why? I got the notes from the surgery of the doctor who has really been doing some great job and who has been doing what many doctors have obviously started possibly not uh, documented that well, and possibly they're not taking it to the public. These cases are a total of 21, 20 cases that I've seen. Those are brief notes that you wrote with the diagnosis, why people were in the surgery, and then it also says what uh, injections they got from which company and when, and then a list of their ailments. And there's a broad uh, variety of cases that were observed. I'll briefly try and show it. Most people called about general feeling of not feeling well. Some people had paralytic uh, effects, face, facial paralysis. One patient died of cerebral thrombosis. That was also included. So it was... Ah, sorry, I can't open the file now. I'm a bit surprised that I should deliver it right now. Just wait. Let's have a look. What kind of doctor is this? Is it a general practitioner? As a general practitioner is just treating his patients normally and who's been very diligent in his job and knows the problem of uh, adverse effects of vaccinations and who asked that question in differential diagnosis after the vaccination and anamnesis. Well, it does not go without saying because he also reports that his patients who had to undergo further examination, should have gone to hospital for uh, other chronological severe symptoms were 
turned off, turned down by the hospital. They did were not accepted in hospital. There were two cases where the hospital said, no, I've got to reject them. And those were people who had cases who had to be hospitalized for further examination. Well, why were there the reason? No reason given. But we also have the statements from hospital personnel that this differential diagnosis adverse effect of vaccination should not be followed in detail. There's an instruction for hospital personnel not to do that. Of course, that's understandable if that hospital is also trying to get their staff vaccinated. And if they put pressure on their staff, then they don't want to see what can happen. There's obviously an intended blind spot. This differential diagnosis adverse effect of vaccination is just uh, pushed away by uh, inpatient doctors, uh, outpatient doctors and by hospitals alike. The motivation is clear. Everybody who is doing those injections doesn't want to be in, uh, confronted with the adverse effects. But in terms of consequences, it can be literally lethal and it will not be clarified. Out of those 20 cases, one person died, m very certainly because of the effects of the uh, vaccination, sinus vein thrombosis, then the facial paralysis. The person did not die, but uh, suffered from that for a long, long time, or has been suffering for a long time. Those are very impressive cases out of those 20. From those 20, there were three, four, five that are really, really serious, and the others just need treatment. Many of them were treated with cortisone, which had a positive effect on the ailment. The cases, the individual cases, well, I can't discuss them all. I have them, but I think that would be uh, leading too far, too far, too much detailed information, because it also shows what individual examinations were done, what laboratory values were there. But what's also striking about this overview is that with a large number of those patients, the D-dimers were higher, and that's an indication of thrombosis or cytosis in the body, also typical. And many of those who had light symptoms or general symptoms, nausea, headache, not feeling well, um, problems with their limbs. With those symptoms out of these 20 people uh, normalized under cortisol treatment, whether it was only because of the cortisol, I don't know, but uh, whether that would have become better without cortisol, you can't say, because it's not a clinical study, it's individual cases. Uh, according to my, lay, my layman understanding, if I don't do this differential diagnosis and check whether this is happening in a temporal correlation with the vaccination and that may be caused by it, how can I arrive at a good diagnosis and a, appropriate treatment at all? Well, <coughs> the doctor did it really well. I mean, he is aware, that doctor is aware of all the potential adverse effects. <clears throat> that are reported on, including myocarditis, heart problems. There's one case he has that after that vaccination, somebody developed uh, tachycardia, that is uh, 
high heart rate, which is resistant to therapy. And then the file says it's a case to be reported to the cardiologist. I don't know what the result of that was. So um, sort of an isolated symptom after that vaccination. So that's something that requires further um, further analysis. I had already said that before, we don't just have the variants between batches with so-called impurities found all over the place with all, all drugs. All of a sudden, somebody does an analysis and finds something which should not be in there. That's called impurities. But whether there may be certain batches that are deliberately contaminated with certain ingredients, additional ingredients, something you can't say, when that would be very close to conspiracy theory. We don't want that. Well, isn't it the case that by now there is a way for the producers to change the composition of substances, uh, adapting it to virus variations and mutants? So that is allowed to them, isn't it? Yes, they've been given that liberty, which is very uncommon, because for every new indication for any new pathogen, there needs to be new approval and supporting studies. There needs to be something that is transparent and scientific. And that's really frightening. It's sort of... Uh, carte blanche for the manufacturers, you can do whatever you want with your vaccine, totally uncommon. We, with the flu vaccines, we've got this adaptation to the flu virus types. And even there, the studies that are separate studies need to be at least monitoring studies. They need to be defined with a study plan. You need to know whether data is collected and they need to be open and transparent. And all that is something I cannot find, not accessible to me. I don't know whether anybody else who's in pharmacology, whether anybody else gets the data. I think it all collect, it all builds up in the Paul Ehrlich Institute. That's the approval institution. That is the uh, institution that's in charge of the pharmacobalance. And they are the ones who need to do the monitoring. And we've got the Information Freedom Act. And of course, you can ask Power Ehrlich Institute those questions as a journalist. That's definitely necessary. And I would be happy to help wording those questions because there is so much secrecy and things that keep changing all the time, regulations that it's difficult with transparency. And in addition, they've also allowed them to change their preparations. So the first and second vaccination, well, one with this manufacturer's, one with that manufacturer's preparate, that of course uh, dilutes the cause of effect or secondary effects, and that's deliberate. <laughs> Obviously, they don't want anybody else to find out what's in there and uh, what the behavior of the substances is. Well, to make it very clear, this Delta variant, if we wanted to look at this, assuming that it is completely different 
then one would have to conduct a new research study or a monitoring study in a transparent way, isn't it? And if you change the mRNA, for example... If you change the mRNA, then that would need some monitoring because totally different responses to the mRNA can occur in the cells and different adverse effects. That is something which would need at least to be monitored. It's, a, it's an ongoing study, it is. An ongoing study that is being changed while it's, going, while it's ongoing. Something unprecedented. And since the pathogens keep changing, which is happening all the time, then there would also need to be a transparent view of what the response is that has been adapted to the change in the pathogen and how to monitor for the absence of adverse effects. It requires a public monitoring plan. I think it's a really intransparent business. And my suspicion, which somebody needs to contradict, is that on the basis of this emergency regulation, we are approving all those things because it's supposedly such a dangerous epidemic all over the world, that things are being permitted which had not been permitted before and that it's being exploited for using the new mRNA technology that has never before been tried on humans that it can now be utilized by investors who've been waiting for years and decades, waiting for a big clinical study where they can do it, that they're now really exploiting that, that intransparency. That is the big risk I'm seeing. And we need to preclude that risk. But for that, we need an independent pharmacobalance institution, and we don't have it. We've got one that is in the business, that is rating economic innovation higher than the security of the population that state, the state provides services for its um, citizens and that is what Paul Ehrlich and the government and the EMA and the European Union, they've all forgotten about it. It used to be a banner that they were carrying when it came to, uh, I don't know, putting tiles in slaughterhouses up to the roof. They were always putting up all those hygiene measures and everything and environmental protection and health precaution and whatnot. They always said, okay, the state has to do that for the citizens. And they killed lots of small companies and enterprises because some small companies couldn't keep those enormous rules. But now that principle is gone. It's a few really huge companies trying to try out some new products on us. And we've got far too little transparency, no transparency about what is being tried out on us. I just recently saw an article from California that was in, wait, in, in spring this year, that there was a Moderna batch in which, uh, which made a whole lot of people seriously ill and they just eliminated that batch. And there are reports, well, lots of those reports. And it would be thinkable that if I change the design of this study, I could say, well, this adjuvant XY, aluminium or whatever, it doesn't work very nicely and we'll try to use platinum or whatever else. 
So uh, changing a part of the substances, that would be that would be thinkable, would it? You can only put in what has been declared. And the adjuvant can usually not play a role when it comes to an adaptation to a new pathogen type. If the pathogen has a different antigenic action, then the according antibodies produced by the vaccination, by the syringe, and by the vaccination need to be adapted. That is theoretically possible, like with the flu vaccination. It's possible to find out new viruses in order for our body to develop antibodies. But that is uh, nucleic acid information that's got nothing to do with the adjuvants. Those adjuvants are just support materials, making sure that the matter gets where it's supposed to get and lasts long enough and need not be uh, refrigerated so much and all that. So it's just support material in order to get that nucleic acid information into the cells to make sure that the according proteins are generated there. So the adjuvants should not be the thing that should be declared, of course, and requires a new approval. <clears throat> so the changes of the batches is something that I think is very important to monitor and in one of the last sessions, one of the scientists, I think it was the Canadian colleague who said that they have read, he didn't mention where, that in a study analyzing, analyzing the counter effects, the adverse effects, was 80% are only caused by two batches, apparently. And I looked for that, I didn't find it, but if we could find that out, that would be a proof that maybe we have a variance in the batches and that things are being tested that may be hazardous and there are some vaccinations that are less um, dangerous and maybe control groups will get something like solenoid um, solution. These are things that are not made transparent either, and it would be interesting or important to find this. Wolfgang, uh, we've got something. Professor Berkholz once did a graph on that. I think it was based on an American analysis. I think we can ask him about that. That would be good. I'd like to have that and have a look at this. I couldn't find it so far. Well, might happen. might be that he developed that graph himself based on that information. And it was uh, something that's similar with other vaccines, just with this broader distribution that there were 50 percent or more percent of that were in charge of the uh, of the secondary effects or adverse effects, and not such a small number of patches. So it's important for me to point out that uh, the uh, adverse effects from uh, depend on other factors as well. In one of the previous sessions I mentioned this before that the technique of doing the injection can play a big role. For example, if the 
thin um, of the needle is um, inside a blood vessel, we have a different spread of the vectors inside the vaccine, <clears throat> and that may change the adverse effects. As an example, I mentioned myocarditis, um, the inflammation of the heart that uh, occurs briefly after the vaccination. That can be explained by this being young men who are, have more blood in the muscles. They are stronger, more muscular, and that means the veins carry more blood and the pin of the needle, the, top, the um, needle will enter into the blood vessel more than with elderly people. That could explain why this is more the case in younger people. It goes to the right atrium and the cardiaditis, which um, the um, physician reported to us can be one of such side effects that the injection went into the muscle and then the MOJ in the right atrium, that's where the venous blood goes and uh, reacts there. And then the sign node uh, was affected and uh, taken out of rhythm. And then the heart race started. So these are things that I don't know how the cardiologists want to do this. Theoretically, they would have to take tissue from the sign node and that's of course connected to a certain risk because it's changed and risk for the patient and that can only be done by a histologic um, exam this can be done no problem um, if somebody has heart rhythm problems then sometimes a probe is moved into the heart and the inside of the heart chamber is changed and treated so that this can be treated, the rhythm uh, problem, and things like that happen. Also, uh, pacemakers are pushed directly into the heart, and that'll try to uh, give the rhythm to the heart. And in a clinical cardiology, this can be examined, and that would be a good project to do with people who, after the so-called vaccination, um, have problems with the heart, then uh, it'd be good if the endocard would be examined and it would make sense. Also for reasons of prevention, to see whether it really originates there. And I would clearly recommend to everybody vaccinating, uh, do not believe WHO, do not believe the RKII. Um, injecting uh, aspiration is not necessary. In this case, it is negligent not to do that, because if the mRNR particles are not safely vaccinated into the muscle, then you will be held responsible for all the corresponding uh, adverse effects, which can be well linked to that. So if you don't minimize uh, the risk by aspiring, uh, that is neglections, and that is a fact I'd like to point out here very clearly. 
especially in these experimental vaccines with all the known side effects, uh, the PR, the Paul Ehrlich Institute says, uh, if the spikes get into the blood, it is highly toxic. According to their own research, if the Paul Ehrlich Institute says you don't have to take care that the spikes get into the blood, then that is not logically understandable. I think it is criminal to, to split up what they know and what they don't want to hear on the other side. And this is something I'd like to repeat here once again. It is irresponsible. Aspire before you inject, if you do. That's something that a problem that I can understand logically speaking. If it if that's the fact that the vaccine or the alleged vaccines were developed in order to work against the spike protein, which was considered highly toxical then against the virus with the spike problem, uh, spike protein. And if then this very spike protein is injected into the body, then you need to at least make sure that this poison, well, it's, not, it's not that it's less toxic because it's used as a, as a vaccine. They need to make at least sure that this poison doesn't get into a vein and then into the heart or lung, that would be a logical thing. I don't need to be a medical specialist for that. And if I had to stand that case in court, then I would know what to say. But before that, I would ask you, Wolfgang. Yes, if it goes into the heart, it is carried on into the lung uh, in the right uh, circle. and. That's it is where it gets stopped. And as the lung is such a big organ, it's massive with a massive surface, and uh, these uh, vessels open up very widely, it doesn't get everywhere at the same time in the lung. I've said the, it's a luxury organ. We can live well without a part of the lung. We'll get more weak. Uh, but that is a process that is not as acute. It only gets acute if the thrombosis are so massive that actually there is an increase of the pressure in the lung and parts of the larger parts of the lung fail because of embolia. But microthrombosis in the lung are, is a process that makes you a bit more tired than before and you feel that when you do physical effort and I think this is going to be a large number of cases also with elderly people apart from the other organs where the nanoparticles are get into or the vectors get into we, we one of the cases of the doctor who were brought it by the doctor was thrombosis in the uh, um, uh, in the uh, heart this person had massive thrombosis and so it went into the vessels. And uh, what if it does not get into the vessels when you get an injection? Is it possible that it somehow works its way from the muscles into the vessels or is it improbable? 
If it is injected into the muscle tissue, we know there is a different way, the drainage of the cells. Cells have a metabolism, so that is removed, substances are removed. This is done by the liquid between the cells, so it's not just blood and uh, capillaries uh, that supply the cells with oxygen, but it is the lymphatic system. So it's not pumped in, it just flows off. It flows off and then there is a collection system that goes to the lymphatic nodes where the uh, uh, where it is detected what is removed and then it just goes through the ductus thoracicus into the vein and be pushed back to the blood and this drainage system uh, trains the muscle, of course, and that means the muscle uh, is, the vectors can spread through the lymphatic system. There are tests and experiments with animals that were injected with uh, radioactive C14 and it was measured where this radioactivity went in the body and this is where this information comes from that these nanoparticles collect in certain organs especially in the lymph nodes which are in the drainage system are close to the injection area in the armpits on the injection side uh, grow and there is reports from a gynecologist who told me that she noted that after the vaccination people came afraid of being uh, having a node there having metastasis of a cancer breast cancer for example and uh, often it it spreads there and but this is an inflammatory activity possibly probably caused by the uh, vaccination and in the animal intestines it uh, was found that it went more it went to the spleen it went to the liver and this was where it was found that Biontech this Japanese study found that it collects in the ovaries which is of course quite frightening because if there is an inflammation in the ovaries due to that collection that may lead to infertility but um, I'm lacking the studies this is just uh, the toxicological studies that have been there done and that have to be kept in mind and which actually need to be looked at to um, exclude necessary um, emergencies and as we have an emergency these studies are not done and uh, in the face of the pandemic which is not a pandemic which is just an influence uh, this is really has to be called criminal but in view of this um, build-up of nanoparticles and the spike protein in the gonads uh, there are several American doctors who have reported on that. Two Canadians were there. One was here, Dr. Roger Hodkinson, another Canadian who is currently hunted by the media, so he cannot appear anywhere. That's Dr. Charles Hoffman. And then there's also an American doctor, pathologist, and uh, the other 
pathologist from Idaho is uh, yeah, Ryan Cohn. He just reported that, and it's not just his own experience. He's also in a network of doctors. There's, there's quite a lot going on there. In, in California, along the whole West Coast, there's a lot going on. And he's also reporting on an explosion in the number of cancer cases, especially because, according to the reports that he gave us, well, we get them in here, uh, according to what he reported us, those are patients with a cancer diagnosis that had calmed down. After the vaccination, it went up like an explosion. Those are no studies, mind you. Those are observations by quite a number of doctors. And uh, it's something you cannot just ignore, especially since we know that no decent study has been done, especially since we know that already now there are massive uh, adverse effects. It's a, uh, don't understand why it's being ignored. And yeah, it's, it's, it's impossible. There are people who have been treated for cancer, where cancer had been diagnosed before. Those were not included in the study. Those were excluded because they couldn't participate in the study. So they were taken out deliberately because it, uh, nobody wanted to know what it was like. And the bigger scandal is that the German government and Obama Ersatzkasse said those people need to get priority with vaccinations because they are part of the group. So they put people into the priority groups and it seems the ethical com commission, the German ethical commission did not notice. I don't know, maybe there are no medical specialists in there. They were excluded and now they're going to get priority in the application. Excluded from the study, priority with the uh, application. I mean, that's night flight with eyes shut. That's totally irresponsible. Something that would have required an extra study, extra observation. But it's just done, and people are given that in massive amounts. And I could imagine that the influence on the immune system, not just by the mRNA, but also the adjuvants, it plays a role, that the immune system and its possibility of responding has changed significantly. And an immune system that could fight against cancer cells up to that moment is weakened and cancer starts growing again. It's getting worse. That's exactly what Ryan Call has described. And Wolfgang, that's also what a dentist has described. He was here in, in a session and he was reporting about patients where a tooth that was not quite all right but that didn't suffer too much uh, before went up like an explosion. So something happens to the immune system that well, sometimes teeth do explode, do explode yes, not really. Uh, it, the, the body, when you've got a splinter in your skin somewhere, you know that first it's all red and then it's the, the immune system comes and then it isolates that wood splinter in this uh, vaccination, in this uh, inflammation, then it's encapsulated, it may be visible, but it's neutralized away from the rest of the body by this tissue that's formed around it to make sure it doesn't disturb the rest of the body. 
And the body is doing a similar thing when it comes to other things that it can't dispose of that quickly. And when it comes to a tooth, for example, and you've got an inflammation somewhere, then there's also uh, tissue that's formed in order to encapsulate that and keep it calm, although the inflammation is still there. And the immune system that has been weakened, weakened by whatever, the immune system can live up again. And it can also be other reasons, other well, if somebody gets cortisol or uh, I don't know, whatever, uh, they might get somebody with uh, psychic stress or whatever, it can start again. We know those uh, reactions from everywhere, all over the body. It's, let's take herpes virus. Most of us have herpes viruses in their bodies somewhere, but we don't, uh, we don't uh, get ill. We uh, don't get the shingles. But if we're weakened and if the immune system is overstressed, if we're weak, then all of a sudden we get shingles. And those are viruses or diseases and causes of diseases that the body can manage with the immune system. And they can break out and show clinical symptoms because the whole immune system is upset. And the vaccination or the syringes, the, the injections we get are things that freak out our immune system. Those are respiratory system viruses, and we're immune to that. We are immune to coronaviruses, and there are more and more studies that show it. However, now all of a sudden we've got these coronaviruses coming in through the skin into the body. And that, of course, is something which is an irritation to the immune system. And the immune system cannot handle that reasonably. But first it has to check how it can handle that. In human evolution, that has never happened before. Respiratory viruses could not travel through the skin into the body, but they always came through the nose and mouth where you were breathing in. That is something which evolution has done. And all of a sudden, we're injecting them right into the body, or make the body create them. And of course, that's an enormous stress case, an enormous challenge to the immune system, which then our natural body cannot handle. There's not a standard reaction to that, something that would happen to each and every one. That would be the case if we'd had it before in evolution, but we don't. But now the whole immune system is all upset. And there's also that diversity of uh, illness reactions that we cannot really uh, allocate to anything. And we've got to be very, very careful in differential diagnosis with that. Wolfgang, we're getting more and more inquiries concerning the differentiation, natural immunity. You've talked about herd immunity. <clears throat> and of course, you refer to the natural immunity here. So T-cell immunity, we get inquiries on this. And we have discussed this a couple of times, but never really into detail. So now I have a number of people who want to get tested because they are convinced that they have the disease, whatever it may be, that um, is the viral of the viral origin. 
and uh, they have had this, they survived it, and they want to get their blood um, count for the doctor to certify that they have T-cell immunity. That's only first step. The second step would be to get a court certification that due to this, a vaccination is not necessary but could even be dangerous. Uh, so that the one is not a subject of the anti-corona and the vaccination measures. To clarify this, I don't know if you can say it this way, but is it actually possible to get this status confirmed by a blood count um, with a laboratory saying yes, T-cell um, immunity is there, otherwise it should be possible, otherwise we couldn't say it's herd immunity there. Yes, it's a bit more of, uh, it's a bit extensive of an examination, but um, T-cell immunity is very multi-layered. We learn the variants and our immune system is updated and uh, all the time the T-cells are updated all the time, adjusting to new variants. If you've had no contact with the latest ones, at least we've had contact with the earlier versions. And Corona, corona is a part of um, um, a, a virus that's been around since 2002. And um, there was an outbreak at the time, <clears throat> but probably they are much more old, much older also within human beings. And at least since these nearly 20 years, it has been traveling the world, and we've all had been have been in contact. Just imagine the million of people traveling airplanes every day, transporting these viruses around, and they can spread easily. That are very uh, contaminous, and our immune system just uh, successfully deals with them and this creates a t-cell reaction immunity all the time and i've had this model of the epitopes the with um, the different sides on the outside of the viruses and um, they have counted these and identified a great number and now the point is that the epitopes are the contact points of our immune system to catch catch the uh, cells and kill them and develop the antibodies specifically against uh, these cells or whether T cells themselves with the structures of the changing pathogens are remembered, memorized and uh, gets these new antigens and this epitopes are over thousand different ones that one has uh, identified. So these are features that one could look at now. Of course, that's uh, quite a lot for a laboratory. And this is why they look at uh, selected ones only. They look at certain surface structures which they can identify and they take certain antigenes which are then brought together with the T-cells, uh, parts of viruses, these are readily available for purchase and these can be used in the testing and if we can see that our T-cells react to this, 
um, we know, okay, there is immunity against this type of cell. That is an elaborate and uh, difficult process. So the, it's getting more expensive the more you test. But and, it's getting uh, safer, isn't it? Yes, yes. And uh, it's enough if our immune system detects them. It doesn't have to check the whole virus. Just a few epitopes will be enough. And saying here, this is back, so um, kill them off. They can be dangerous. And these are things that are not constant. So it's not like in calculation when this figure comes out, this is going to happen. It's a bit like in our, with our memory. Sometimes we come on to things that used to be dangerous. Uh, we remember that. We don't remember the details, though, but we've seen certain features and that triggers off uh, our remembrance of the our memory of a dangerous situation. And that's what our immune system does. There are certain structures that are used as triggers, and these can be very different individually. So this is why I think these tests that have been done, uh, there was a Danish study that I've seen which was very, very intensively looking into people who have passed through the coronavirus infection, where they looked at a high immunity, seeing that 90% of these people had a T-cell immunity. But these are things that can be done on laboratory level, and they say that you have immunity, but that um, prevents a serious disease in most cases, but not always. Other things may come in and uh, then the immune system may not be able to defend the virus off. But that is even more the case after the so-called vaccination. We see all the breakthroughs, as they call them, um, by the immunity that is supposed to be injected by the muscle is much, much less and much worse. Mr. Dresden just said he's not going to get vaccinated next time. He'd rather get infected for a protection. What an absurd approach. So that is so contradictory in terms that this person is allowed to speak on TV is quite understand not understandable. Wolfgang, when you look at the reaction after the first in vaccination or the second in, and, and the booster comes, would I, uh, well, theoretically speaking, if it is the same material, not a variant, then I would have the same problems again, again, or even more? Or uh, what would you, I mean, is there any findings about that? Well, I can only try to understand the theoretical model here uh, with the booster vaccination. If it's a vaccination against the same stuff, the same structures, one would expect that only the antibodies protect. And that is possible if these antigenes, the viruses, move through the skin. I've been vaccinated there, and so I've developed antibodies in the muscle, and this is spread through the blood. And if more of it comes through the blood, then there may be an antigene reaction. 
but uh, otherwise it's not theoretically explainable that new antibodies are fought by uh, antibodies by caused by the beauty by the booster vaccination but it's not part it's not that way the T cells the B cells the lymphocytes communicate each other and they cooperate in the body and if the body has learnt something it is prepared and the only thing that can happen is that if this acquaintance is done for the first time by the vaccination that the immune system reacts inside the body but um, just something that is practically not needed because we need the antibody reaction in the mouth and the nerve to fend off the normal um, reaction where the viruses come in. They don't come in usually inside the body and that may lead to adverse reaction and it doesn't help to uh, inject, in, inject into the muscle again. It's not going to help. Yes, um, let's go back again, because now we also have Professor Bergholz in our uh, line about the content of the batches. He said, well, it's, it's Corona and Red Alert, and they are at full liberty to test whatever they want. And nobody asks questions, and they say, okay, if we've got the Delta variant, you're allowed to adapt your vaccines, which, well, whatever they do to adapt, I don't know. Nobody knows. Professor Werner Bergholz, you can say something about that, can you? <clears throat> can you hear me? Okay, so the production of the vaccines is a new process. And from my industrial experience of 20 years, I can say a new process is always a problem it takes time to get it set up properly um, that's difficult enough and the general experience is that of course i don't have 100 percent perfect batches i've always got a share of batches which are not 100 percent to what i wanted to produce and that can be statistically looked at and people who uh, looked at that uh, VERS database, this American database, uh, looked at this. The big benefit there is that for each report of an adverse reaction, the, the batch number is um, listed there as well. So if I would to be comparing the number of char of batches that created adverse effects uh, saying that uh, 50 percent of the adverse effects are caused by 50 percent of the charge of the batches and 90 percent of 90 percent of the charges that would be a perfect process but nobody can get that straight off a cuff it takes months at least or even years to establish the production process respectively but what that tells us here is very frightening depending on when and which producer you take it applies for all between 3 and 11 or 12 percent of the batches are responsible for 90 percent of the severe side effects 
And even for a relatively new process, this is disastrous. This is something that must not happen. And I looked into this um, 100-page document of EMA, this uh, approval document from December. And what we read there is really irritating. It says, for example, that for major process monitoring parameters, including the substances used, the nanolipides, there is no measuring methods. So it says there until June, um, the methods should have been developed to say the people who produce the vaccine are facing a situation like a chef that who has no uh, thermometer, no clock or uh, no uh, scales um, or rather very imprecise instruments. And of course, you won't expect him to produce a reliable result. And the same applies if we move on <clears throat> to something else, which is often not mentioned, which is the evaluation of the 20,000 biontech Pfizer test people. It was a very small pilot in a very well-characterizable production facilities with the best substances available on the market to produce it. And in production, uh, they take uh, cheaper substances which are not as pure and uh, work with uh, 200 liters uh, compared to much more smaller and easier to control reactors in the test or pilot phase. So um, that this goes doesn't go very well in the beginning is easy to predict and just to compare this in the database, people looked at the, I can't remember properly, that 60-70% of the batches are responsible for 80% of the severe adverse effects, which are of course much lower in the um, absolute figures than it was in the COVID-19 numbers. And if I go further down in my experience as quality manager, I looked at the method in the development, as far as we can see, there was not, there's not a law how to do this, but there is a quality management standard, ISO 9000, and there is an application for the medical area for this, but this 9001 standard, which is uh, so to replace legal requirements if uh, none are available. Um, and if we look at what was done there, nothing was done according to standard, literally. And here it is important to see if people have any liability claims due to the vaccination. The first person in the line is, of course, the vaccinating doctor. But I can't imagine that the producers can escape from liability, especially if we have mortalities and a rule here. If I 
bring a product to market and it causes death or severe injury, as the producer or the person selling it to the market, I am um, subject to a criminal lawsuit. And uh, the normal way to get out of this is that I have to prove that this product was produced according to state-of-the-art technology. How do I do this? I keep all the quality records to and present them to a neutral expert who would say, yes, this is all right from the start, from development, right to the pilot production, monitoring the production, uh, qualification of the process. All of this has been done according to state-of-the-art as it was uh, prescribed in the standards and that relieves me from the criminal lawsuit and i cannot imagine that any of the producers will be able to present this but you just said that even if you just look at the iso 9000 requirements they've not been complete how do you know well some of it is uh, listed in that uh, EMA, EMA document and there are some things also in the Pfizer reports on the evaluation of the 20,000 vaccinated and 20,000 placebo people. And that tells us that they've not complied with the standards? Well, from the overall collection of the information which is public, that is quite uh, unambiguously so. And I think there's a contradiction, but maybe because I didn't uh, take notes properly, you first said that between 3 and 11, 12% of batches are in charge of about 90% of uh, adverse effects. And then you said 60 to 70%. Well, apparently I didn't make this clear enough. This was all other vaccinations um, which are in the VERSE database as well. The traditional vaccination that was from 2010 till 2020. So everything except from COVID and that is that means uh, this production process is controlled as it should be could be done better, possibly, but uh, that would be accepted uh, standard process deviations do occur. And uh, but that is a feasible approach as long as one makes sure that the faulty product is uh, quality controlled and doesn't get to the consumer. So that figure between three and 11, 12% uh, responsible for 90% of serious adverse effects. That relates to COVID vaccines, so-called COVID vaccines. And the other relates to 67% in charge of 90% of adverse effects. That's general standard vaccines. Now I also understand why you said that for the first number, you said this is disastrous. Yes, quite clearly. If the production as I know it, there was so much rubbish produced, um, the production would have been stopped. The problem is that where you see the problems in the outbound uh, quality monitoring, there is always a certain loss 
And in technical problems, it's not only to have them work, they should work 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And if you have such poor figures, you know that half of it, or more than half of it typically would uh, fail in during the warranty times. Um, so that's the technical problems, uh, products, and financially for a company that would be unbearable. But one has to ask oneself if we have such a gap <clears throat> between the figures for the standard vaccines and the so-called COVID vaccines, can that really be explained by uh, impurities, by production process flaws? This looks grotesque. Couldn't one also think about the possibility that, um, as Wolfgang Wodak has repeatedly assumed, that people are doing experiments with various batches and their content? Well, you can speculate, of course. Um, I would uh, say from my production experience that, of course, during a running process, you experiment, but you never deliver this kind of thing. So, for example, if I want to improve a process at a certain point, I do it, but um, I produce batches, five or ten batches, and right from the start, I say these are not deliverable um, as unless they have gone through specific testing to make sure that the change has no negative effect on the quality of the product. But um, this type of experimental production uh, batches are non-deliverable and uh, excluded from delivery. I could imagine, but that is pure speculation that this is not the case here. And in a case like this, technically, or in technical products, it would be standard, but that would be asking for too much. That due to the large array of side effects, one would have the right to say, okay, we do an orbit in the factory. We want to look at what you're doing. And we take a look at all the quality reportings, and then we'll go to your factory and look at it on site. And uh, then uh, one could, of course, say more what is really going on if we could look at the original data and quality assessment. In a normal customer-supplier relationship, that would be a standard. We've done uh, lots of this. I personally done over 100, surely. In a different context, with uh, different measures, that is with the production of face masks and the production of the PCR test sticks, we have uh, found monstrous pictures from the production countries where people are working in the mud. We don't want to assume that, but that the, but the data that you've shown showed that something is not working well. Now we also have Mr. Ludwig in the conference call. Wolfgang, just wait. Uh, ask your question first, and then... Because it just uh, falls into the discussion, I said if you change something in the approved vaccine, for example, adapting it to new variants, 
what are the rules that normally apply for a producer? What do they have to prove to do it? Or can they just do it? Werner, can you still hear us? Werner, did you get the question? Apparently not. This picture seems frozen. Well, that's now, what a pity. pity. Um, because um, this would have an expert telling us of what normally is done if something is produced in the normal procedure. What are the requirements? Wolfgang, let's do it this way. I also have a question because he also wanted to say something on the risk of uh, an energy blackout in autumn and winter. We'll first ask Mr. Ludwig, who has been in the land for a while, and afterwards we'll return back to Professor Bergholz. Mr. Ludwig, something went wrong with the internet, but uh, I already said I was looking forward to talking with you again. Just to repeat and summarize that, you are from the legal area and you've been in education. You're doing the blog Fassadenkratzer. And you can say a few things about what we're currently experiencing. I've heard uh, Covid Rabenstein's summary. What we are seeing is an information war. We've got a creeping transformation in the spirit of the GDR, public perception as an objective power and for the psychological control of the behavior of the population. Can you explain that in more detail, Mr. Ludwig? Can you, can you hear me? Okay. The technical difficulties are challenging today. It's working perfectly now. So I could uh, watch Mr. Held be, and then when it was to switch over, my my line broke down. Anyway, so the war of information which is an expression coined by Mrs. Mittmanns Kruber, working on the uh, an Austrian television station. I've taken this from her. And one would need to say information warfare, it's a fight about the awareness of the people or the consciousness of the people. This is what the fight is about uh, from the official government and media side, where they try to, by all means, get into the awareness of the people that what they want and which is of course very unilateral type of information everything which contradicts this which highlights other aspects and shows mismatches all of this is not just 
pushed away or blinded off, it is pursued even. And that means that, I don't know how to say, that means that a group awareness is created and the individual awareness is replaced by a group awareness represented by the public opinion and this group awareness is always compared to the individual awareness which is a reduction it's always a reduction um, moving towards the dreamlike awareness and that is mainly due to a fact that is hardly hardly noticed that there is no enlightenment process starting in this or being the result of the public opinion what we just see is the perception of the or the reception of the public opinion normally our enlightenment is caused by two factors we have the perception on one hand and on the other hand we have the thinking with its terms that allow us to understand the perception and only after these two elements interlink we move towards the realm of insight, insight of reality which we are looking at. And now we don't notice if <clears throat> I hear something on TV or on the radio or read it in the internet or in a newspaper that I pick up thoughts that are presented to me from the outside and these ideas for me start as perceptions. It's not my own thoughts. These thoughts are perceptions and I really would have to work them with my own thoughts and terminology because and that doesn't happen because people feel that they it is their thought so the ultimate truth yes uh, it is it's from the outside and there is no necessity necessity to move my own terms and terminology to question the thoughts and ideas that uh, come from the outside and understand them and uh, every perception that I have, if we try to stop thinking and I just look to the outside and then I get into a kind of dreamlike consciousness and this dreamlike consciousness, at least there is a tendency towards this, is also in, present in my Awareness, if I pick up thoughts and information from the outside, information in the way, a term of thoughts, but I leave it at that. So that uh, creates a so-called group consciousness. 
so that you that you only uh, see um, the ideas that are transported from the outside and uh, don't worry not, not having your own terminologies and that has been said that way so it looks like metropolis here um, that mr villa said right in the beginning this is unquestionable right all right exactly so it's instructed from above however with most people it happens like that anyway people don't question what they hear So what we need to add is uh, something dampening uh, the uh, this effect that um, there is an authority saying again and again uh, or spreading lies continuously and repeatedly and uh, I, in lies I'm out of reality and if I'm not in reality with my consciousness it additionally dampens my awareness and this is called in psychology <clears throat> a type of hypnosis so we have good and well-tested experiments that have been conducted to show how easy it is <clears throat> to make the awareness of people defenseless against lies um, in these experiments in the beginning the examiner says uh, makes a wrong statement but explains that it is wrong and why but then in the course of the experiment this lie is repeated again and again and it's again positive confirmed and it is uh, found the more often the lie is repeated the more credible it will become although they have been informed that it is not right and why it is a lie yes so th does that mean on a primitive level i say this uh, curtain is red and it's green really and i say this again and again it's uh, again um red it is red by talk of a green one or does it have to be more subtle i, I can't say but it goes into that way <clears throat> so that means that this will also work if the testee has been informed beforehand but it is a kind of hypnosis created by the constant repetition of the lie. We have, I think this is extremely interesting because here you are overlapping with psychology, really. It's philosophy and psychology at the same time here. So, in the concrete case at hand, we have, we are looking at this, apparently everybody who has uh, thought about the medical procedures in their lives and uh, treatment methods and psycho, no, <clears throat> um, uh, drugs, 
that actually they have to go through a multi-year test before they are approved. Uh, they have to be clinical studies and phases one, two, three, and so on. Everybody knows this, but still politicians claim at the last uh, Jens Spahn and uh, Mr. Kretschmer from Saxony saying these are fully and uh, fully unrestrictedly approved vaccines. It's wrong. Everybody says, everyone knows, but it's repeated often enough until even the people who know it's wrong seem to accept it. And I accept, I expose that this is why you talk about dream-like awareness. <clears throat> yes, you know it's wrong, but you still cooperate because you don't question the terms, you don't think you just accept it because the continuous repetition seems to make it plausible or look plausible. Yes, this is possible as well. It even goes as far um, that it is thought to be true in the end. And that's the disturbing fact. And we see that if we talk to people with the population, with the human, with the people. And the fatal point here is that it is not individual lies. If it is an individual lie and uh, the other context is okay, then they can be clarified. But here we have the overall context in which these facts have been created, that these are changed to a new reality. And this stops people from getting out of it because they are thrust into a reality environment, which is not real, but they assume or they think it is real. And the consequence of this is that the person is disturbed in its ability to recognize truth. Hannah Arendt has um, very nicely written about this at the end of the 1960s, saying in one of her articles, if the normal lies are not happy with details, but take the overall context and create that as a lie, offering a new reality, what does this um, invented reality to become a full-fledged replacement of the existing reality. But you can't say anything comparable because truth is not replaceable and that has severe consequences which she describes as the result not being the, the lie just being seen as truth and truth as lie but that these personal orientation in reality um, has to work does not work without the differentiation between truth and uh, 
and lie. So lies are bottomless and uh, they pull people off the carpet without them being uh, able to stand on a different floor. So what does that mean? It means that the person in this context created by the media is out of possibility to see and recognize reality. And that means that in all this public political context, they can't arrive at a proper assessment. That means democracy, which is a process leading to enlightenment, leading to free citizens who are the cornerstones of democracy. These people are switched off, and this is why this is an attack to the center of democracy by the mainstream media and the politicians who uh, deliver the respective facts or lie, whatever you may call them, so that one has to state that the mainstream media and the politics are the largest enemies of democracy. And this is done in such a subtle way that if you look at the Constitution, it says that the freedom must not be restricted, that all power is executed by the sovereign, the population, division of power, and so on. This is formally still in place. We do have democracy. We do have parliament uh, decisions. We have elections. And the parliament elect, elects a government. That's okay. But in reality, it is just a facade of uh, democracy and in the end the center of democracy the core of democracy the self-determining human being is switched off by systematic um, lies and moving somebody into moving these people into an irreality so they are not able to assess the political developments and in my opinion, it is of it is of it is a gigantic issue with the formal external democracy being adhered to, but internally, mentally. Democracy, democracy is fully hollowed out um, be because the person, the individual citizen, which should be the basis of the democracy, is switched off and is only a puppet on strings. In a way, you can imagine that uh, this, this uh, imaginary construction or uh, 
well, we are all social beings and there are social conventions that may be hip at a certain time, that <clears throat> how to behave when, and it's a type of new reality being created on which people agree or which is when some lead the way and others follow, or there's a religious conviction and ch things change, the zeitgeist changes and then people follow that, that spirit, and then they say, oh, hey, what did we think? We thought that was cool. So things can change for uh, social being like humans. Uh, that it makes sense for to a certain degree that such a mechanism works in people. However, when it is perverted and exploited, <clears throat> and when such misrepresentations are communicated again and again and again in order to achieve something, to, to bring about some trend, that's devastating. What do you think there's an exit from that? Because uh, we've seen the Verum experiment and the uh, test leader said contradictory things, but then the whole story collapsed. What can an exit be from such a constellation, according to your findings? Well, it has to collapse at some point, obviously. But the question is, and we are experiencing this currently, how many people notice that it collapsed? That's the problem. And that is what we see in the alternative media. So it's the Emperor's New Clothes. And many of the people are so far hypnotized that they don't notice until a uh, small child says um, the emperor is not wearing any clothes. And then me, many of the people in the fairy tale only then notice at that point. But lots of damage have been created by so by then. So uh, following what Viviane has just said, of course, these lies have to a certain extent a protective function. Okay, I could imagine that if you are in a marriage that is not working anymore, there's children, you try a lot of things to try and keep up the facade to and try to think that things are good. That may be okay for a way, for a time. I don't know, I can't judge this, I don't think so, but there is also a parallel to that, this real unpleasant truths that one does not want to see. That's where we're going at the moment. I think that is what you have just described. And this is why for most people it seems to be easier to stick to the, what you said, uh, group awareness and a belief in that virus because it's a completely complex and uh, at first sight a uh, fragile um, lot of lies, and it's easier to think of that without uh, thinking their own individual, individual way, um, rather than having to assume or accept that uh, they have to be afraid of their apparently own politicians. Um, I think there's one more thing that's really, really important. Um, something being true or not being true is something we'd find out in dialogue. Uh, 
we can be wrong, we can be mistaken, and things we may have found true can change, not just by manipulation, by propaganda that we are exposed to, but it can also change by uh, others convincing us. So we may be convinced of a different view of things through discussion. And I think that is important because discussion has been ruled out. Everybody sees the contradiction, but the discussion that is finding a truth together is something that has been switched off, and that's important. What do you think about my, my new uh, piece of cloth behind me? It's oh, a nice red. <laughs> the sign said, this is a red curtain, by the way. Yeah, really important what Dr. Vodak said. Democracy lives through, through joint points of view, trying to find the real truth or finding the right path in order to resolve problems. So it takes a uh, diversity of approaches and findings in order to get somewhere. And you can only do that in discussion, in discourse. And then you create an overall picture. And that's prevented. The moment the moment you don't have an exchange of arguments, the moment you don't listen to arguments anymore, but when you beat upon somebody because he's got an argument, when you discredit people or libel them or uh, search his homes, trying to criminalize them, the moment all that happens, it means that the, uh, the, the soil of democracy has been eroded. The moment that discourse, that is so essential for democracy, the uh, discourse between free citizens who are able to take decisions, the moment that discourse is switched off, we are on the road to totalitarianism. I think it's very nice, and that's the strength of democracy, which is uh, many people notice an error earlier and they discuss it and they can correct their behavior so that the society can see the risk that comes up due to a um, an issue and um, if you have a totalitarian state where only one person says what's right and wrong and the other person the other people cannot point out the mistakes there's much more damage done and the damage for society is much better and much worse because this is why um, democracy is strong because it always has opposition and is welcome it's like the brake in a car if you hadn't had a brake uh, the best car wouldn't go far. <clears throat> yes, but currently, in the current party system, the opposition is switched off. Switched off because the majority parties uh, vote for the government, elect the government, and the other parties can train how to be the opposition, but they've got no possibility to bring about change. And that party system is one that also renders the uh, separation of the powers unnecessary, because we've got the government and the uh, parliament with the same majority, same coalition, and they also appoint the important people in the jurisdiction. 
This is why we've taken the tedious experiment saying we want to make sure that there is an opposition in the parliament, but that didn't work out, unfortunately. Well, we're not the end of uh, history. History will continue. And as you said correctly, Mr. Ludwig, this house of lies must collapse. It's a matter of time. It will collapse sometime, someday. And the fight that is going on is basically a fight fought by a small group of people, maybe some 20% of the population, maybe fewer, maybe more. However, those who are vocal, those who speak up are a small group of people against the other side. And the other side is smaller than this small group. However, they make use of a large group of people who are just in, um, as you said, in, in group awareness only get their support from there. So the real opponent are not the people who have stopped thinking, who just blindly go for a vaccination. The real opponent are the ones who have triggered it. But that true opponent cannot succeed without the support by those who just blindly follow. When you think back of what happened 80 years ago, otherwise they can't make a millimeter of progress. And that is why one of the uh, psychology professors, I think Desmate, said that what we're experiencing here, as you described, away from democracy, we have long since left the soil of democracy. Democracy is not measured by elections. There were elections in the GDR too. But it's discussion, and that's destroyed. The free voice is destroyed away from that and towards a totalitarian system, which well, many people think, oh, it has always existed. No, the totalitarian systems have only been initiated since the beginning of the last century. Before that, there were dictatorships and feudalism and th similar things. But that kind of totalitarian system is something, well, I find it, it, it really has to collapse. That's, uh, that's nice in your analysis. It's, it goes for self-destruction. And obviously, it's also something that is based on the people who are in the background and believe that those psychopaths, that they can control the world and who are afraid of not controlling the world, because there are people like us, that those people would not shy back from uh, taking their puppets who have done their duty or who have not done their duty and throw them in front of a bus. There will be a crash sooner or later. We should just do everything to bring about that crash as soon as possible. We can't just sit by the sideline, wait and see. You're not doing it, we're not doing it, Wolfgang is not doing it. We can just sit there as bystanders and wait and see what happens. Well, it will happen, but it only happens if we put all our effort in and make sure it happens. And for that, I think it's just great of you uh, to look at it from a totally different perspective, not from pure psychology, pure analysis of facts, but rather from a philosophical uh, point of view. That's something that I can really follow. If I combine that with the facts that we've heard about before from the statistics, from the graphs, then the picture gets a round picture. But this is where the music plays, what you are saying. That's where the music plays. That's what it is about. Yes. Yes. We had contact time and again with a former. No, wait. Um, you uh, had 
pointed out another important point. The other side even has their puppets installed in the judicial system, uh, in the judiciary, that is. And I always said the judiciary is the last anchor of democracy. If parts of society believe they're above the law, such as uh, global groups of companies and politicians and their supporters, because they've gone way beyond the law and they're controlled by the people who believe they're beyond the law, then it's only the judiciary that can help. And the judiciary have not done their job. There have been a small, a few signs of life from the judiciary, and it's depressing to see that in Germany. It's not that bad in other country, countries. We are in contact with people, in, with lawyers and judges from other countries. Some have already made statements here. What I think is a uh, decisive point is what Lord Sumption, one of the former Supreme Court judges in London, in, in England, said. He said it time and again. It, I think it really matches what you said. Every one of us has a head that, it, that he can use and a brain to evaluate the situation, to not just look at information in astonishment, but also to question it and to create their own picture. Everybody has to do that. It's not enough to just read the thoughts of others uh, or hear the thoughts of others. Everybody has to create their own views. And everybody can, but some people are afraid of doing it. Maybe because they fear that in the end they will find out that uh, it's not the virus they have to be afraid of, but it's the plan that people are pursuing. Or it can be the public explanation that in order to protect the planet we need to reduce the population. And we, as the people behind it, want to protect ourselves from those who are uh, remaining and we need to keep them in control. That's where we are getting. Maybe we are. I haven't made my final conclusion, but at the current point in time, I believe that this is where the real danger is. But you're not getting there. If you say, okay, if the state says it, if the politicians say it, and if the mainstream media preach it every evening, then I don't need to think. Then I just need to think about the risks of the coronavirus. We, I think we should uh, get Lord Sumption again uh, for one of our sessions. But you're coming from the judiciary system, although you've done different things for a while. But you've been in the judiciary system. And I know oh, that's where I first um, noticed you. And I know that part of the failure of the judiciary system, which has not only existed since Corona has existed, we had Wilfried Schmitz here investigating that. I know that you said that you assume, as I do, that part of the failure of the judiciary is um, due to this indoctrination of following the superior powers, which is best described in the uh, novel Der Untertan by Heinrich Mann. I don't know to what extent you believe that, or to what extent it is like that. It's a matter of training, it's a matter of the hierarchy structure in the judiciary system. Am I wrong, or are you also saying that's one of the basic uh, problems, this tendency to follow these superior powers, including in the judiciary? Yes, it is one of the fundamental issues, but uh, this openness for authority is only expressed so strongly uh, 
because the justice system is not independent. Of course, the Constitution says the judge are independent, but in the uh, matter at hand, but uh, personally, he's not independent. All the administration of the courts is linked up to the administration of the executive power. So the uh, courts for uh, administering the um, administration, the social courts, all of these are connected to the respective ministries. And that means the judges are hired by the executive and they are evaluated by the executive and they are promoted or not promoted. And that creates a very strong dependency. So that means the r judges would need their own administration. They would need to be disconnected from the executive powers. So um, at least the uh, federal parliament has its own administration. And um, so that would be the top of it. But in justice system, that's the case. And that is actually impossible. That has to be completely disconnected. Uh, from the executive administration, and it has to be um, independently administered. Couldn't it be, say, subordinated to the president in Germany? They don't have to be subordinated to no one. I think that every state, uh, since obsolutism, is a kind of uh, structurally unchanged authoritarian state. So the absolute monarchs were just replaced by the parliamentarians who ruled the economic life in the same way as the, um, as the uh, former kings and, and emperors did, and uh, they affect the mental life as well. The whole educational system from kindergarten to university is a state affair, and that is impossible. Okay, I'll take back the present, that, that proposal with the president. You're absolutely right. Would you know any society where it's different? No. Because I find it so interesting trying it out. Could, could it be tried out at a regional level? I mean, does our constitution allow that? In, in one of the federal states in Germany? I don't think so. <clears throat> well, anyway, one would have to take every possible step towards that direction to trigger the process wherever it's possible. But in principle, the whole cultural life and the mental, spiritual, cultural life should be an independent or administration taken out of the overall federal state and installed as an independent and uh, complete um, body in the state just as applies to the economy economy um, where there is lots of political interest playing a role and uh, the politicians are just a puppet on the strings uh, of the uh, big corporates 
this is something that there should be a, a reduction. The state should be reduced uh, to the internal and external security. I've got one example. Part of our social system was once self-administering. It was the health system. We had the health insurance companies. They were self-governing, self-administrating bodies. Same with the doctors, hospitals, administering or managing themselves, governing themselves within a legal framework. Now, in our country, I've had uh, this painful experience that it does not protect them against being corrupted by power or money. Uh, getting secondary interests imposed upon them or being lured away by secondary inspects with uh, dependencies being created. Because we do no longer have a health system that is fulfilling its primary task in the welfare states, but companies talk about the health industry. So this self-governing system of healthcare has been assimilated to the rest. And this assimilation process, oh, well, those processes can happen everywhere in a society where we've got this division of labor. And we're talking about this division of labor and tasks, where lots of things that people are doing are done independently, and when specialists do these or that things. I think the, uh, the risk of this institutional corruption or systemic corruption is always there. And for me, that is very much to do with the possibility of uh, noticing in time, fighting against it, and talking about it. But the self-regulation, self-government processes are to do with the size of a society as well. The bigger the whole, the more difficult is communication to find and identify faults and mistakes. The smaller, the better the overview, like in a small municipality. If somebody messes up his task, then you talk to the right person, you complain, and then everybody knows who has messed it up. The smaller the system, the easier is self-correction. And the feedback can be more effective. And the bigger the system, the more difficult. And a globalized economy is an attempt to just render that feedback impossible. Because that communication process that would be necessary in order to identify problems in time is far too complex for people to do it. Yes, you mentioned that in the health sector, there is uh, self-governance, but that doesn't work because the health sector is uh, dominated by the state. And also the health insurances are insurances organized by the state, where the patient Apparently, the line dropped. I can, I could uh, maybe use the gap, the control by politics has been replaced by a governance by economy. And the trick to do this was that all the solidarity communities, which were small gardening communities that um, took care of health uh, at Bismarck's times or groups of workers, that is how it started and it was legalized and so on. <clears throat> and uh, this 
is possible by summing it all up, by collecting it. Then the trick was done in the 80s when all the different associations were put into competition. And they said, now you can select the best. It's not automatically and the one that you are in that you have to take care, but you can jump from one to another. And that was then uh, the solidarity, especially the health insurances were in competition. And what's important to live is, of course, the economic effect. Of course, they didn't want to have uh, uh, seriously sick people and uh, get uh, well-paying members. And of course, that completely destroys the solidarity. That was done um, when uh, the uh, that was that was done before uh, the competition and uh, the competition opened the market so to say this weakening of the solidarity system that's what it is about the abolition of democracy with a weakening of the solidarity system that's what we're seeing and we're getting closer to that point when we approach it from various directions and view it from different angles, such as psychology or uh, philosophy of law, as Herbert Ludwig did. But what really, really counts is we have to be aware of what happens. We must not say, oh, right, uh, somebody's talking about health, although it's about exactly the contrary, it's about the opposite, as Ralph Sharaf said. People are using euphemisms in order to deceive us. In fact, it's not about health. In fact, it's about the abolition of democracy and the destruction of the solidarity system. That is what people are really playing. You've described it, the deregulation within the health system. It is what has really led to the disaster that Herbert Ludwig just described. There are really puppets working there in politics and in health. Because now they're using the health system to destroy everything that's remaining. It's only puppets that are under the control of the hostile uh, enterprise. Yeah, it's something that you can see with uh, students as well. I know somebody who started studying law because he thought that's a great thing. Uh, taking care of the law, somebody with an idealistic standard. And then he talked to people, to his fellow students, and and many of the fellow students went there for studying law because you can earn a lot of money there. And as a lawyer, you can make a fortune. Well, you know that. But um, then he stopped studying law. He just uh, didn't want it anymore. And you find the same. Well, and if those are the lawyers that are in law because they want to earn big money, and if they shape the thinking of a society, then, of course, everybody is easy to seduce and to easy incentives are necessary to seduce people. And it's no longer the law that's in the foreground, but interests. And the same applies to medicine as well. The pharmaceutical industry is feeding the um, uh, students little gifts when they're students. They get nice little offers from the pharmaceutical industry. And throughout their studies, they're taught by professors who are professors mainly because they are very successful in acquiring third-party funds. So they're good at cheating, acquiring money for research, 
And who's the one giving the money for research? Those who want to earn money. So it's mainly pharmaceutical companies, companies from medical equipment or technology. They provide the research money and the professors who want to follow their road, who want to cheat, who can cheat, they're the ones who make a big career and who tell the students what to learn and what not to learn. So that is uh, systemic things that are wrong and that also lead the young people to think, oh, that's normal. Big curtain is a red curtain, is a red curtain. It is about more. I have the impression more and more, I started that way as well. After the uh, studies in the USA, I traveled the USA and presented myself to the big uh, partnerships, the big uh, law firms. Uh, they paid for everything. It was a luxurious life. That was in 86 with high payment, $180,000, $800,000. That was a lot. And today it's more. So, but if you look around, instead of closing your eyes and saying, okay, it is a red curtain, if you look around, you see the price that you have to pay. You have to sell your soul for this money. That's the case. Well, if everybody says so, then the curtain must be red, and it is red. And if everybody joins in, it's fine. And then there's not the little child who says, no, it's not red. But in the end, you sell your soul. And you've got a lot of money, you've got a broken family, and maybe 20 Ferraris, uh, but who's impressed by that? At the time, maybe few, but now few. You make an effort throughout your life, it costs you a lot of energy, it costs you your life, and you're just keeping this lie awake in your head. Because it's always a bit of your ego in there. You can't do that, you can't. Okay. So, the last decades apparently served to replace spiritualism by materialism. Uh, sounds funny to me to speak about speak this way, because I worked a long time as a lawyer in this job. Uh, my law firm was uh, big with 17 lawyers, which big for Göttingen. I've had weeks um, where I didn't know where I had gone because I started in Stuttgart in the morning and in the afternoon I was in Frankfurt or Munich or whatever. And then you find out at some point that something is wrong. Everything explodes. You've, all you've got is money and that can't be it. So I think that is becoming apparent now and uh, especially by what we've heard from Herbert Ludwig. He comes from a different approach and he uh, it's not only since yesterday of that opinion, and this is where I noted him, that when he described that in the justice everything is shattered. But then those people who've got so much money that they don't know what to do with all their money, they, they're the ones who are then buying power for their money, because they can start something new. Let's try, let's try power, let's buy ourselves a government and see what we can govern. That's this this idiotic thing we're seeing. They're so so alien to the concept of what, what do you call it? Why why don't they read Luhmann or a good book so as to understand what rubbish they're doing? But 
millions of people may be going into case. That's so frightening. There should be so much more, so many more people who go to school, to university, who learn how to be vigilant, how to how to really question things as a scientist, how, how to speak up. And that the guys who are speaking up, the great guys, not the ones who are silent and swallow everything. We need people in our society who see it and say what they see and to open discuss. That's something for us to support. And for that, we need a free education system. Well, we just heard about it. Yes, and we don't need only the group awareness and people just walking the trodden path, but we need people to go sideways, otherwise you can't develop. Uh, Wolfgang, let's try. We had one question. Let, can, can we see whether Professor Werner Bergholz is back and can hear us from uh, his frozen position? Werner, can you hear us again? I can hear you, I can see you, yes. Werner, Wolfgang had a question to you. Yes, I still got the question. It was, if the vaccine is changed, can you just do it? Oh, clear answer, no. At least you cannot do that in my area. There was a step-by-step -step stringent process for doing it. First a risk assessment, then a plan, what to test, when to test, how to test, what the criteria are. All that is not delivered. Usually then you have an evaluation and you would say, oh, okay, this is not statistically relevant yet, we need to do another production test and then we can possibly decide, yes, we go this way. So it's like a small new qualification. But it's also about traceability. You cannot just mix around and do what you do, but you have to do something that people can follow and check. Yes, exactly, that's what it's about. Uh, it's all the stuff you have to, to evidence in court if need be. If I change anything about the originally qualified process, then I need to have a complete documentation and statistically significant data to show that nothing has changed. If I can't do that, I am I'm treading on very thin ice and I've got no control of my process. Another interesting process is there's this leaked contract with Pfizer. Uh, well, several leaks have been uh, there. But there should be certain quality and production criteria included there, because in the end, the client, that is the state or whoever, doesn't want to get some mixture or some mash of something. One would expect that there are certain criteria that have been defined, how things may be changed, when they may be changed, what is allowable, what's not, and where you can deviate from certain standards. What standards are part of the contract? That should be made clear. For a certain product, there is normally a technical specification. The technical specification is agreed between supplier and buyer. Both sign it. And then the manufacturer does not just regularly evidence or prove compliance with the specification, but today it goes even further. In production, there's also statistical process control. And major customers uh, of the company where I worked had the, had the right to check our SPC data online. And 
That means you can check by the hour whether the process is running, is stable, whether something is not running smoothly. And if not, you can ask, hey, guys, what's going on with you? Uh, have you modified the process? Have you stopped it? What are you doing? So it's 100% transparency these days for the big customer. So the customer can see what's happening in the factory. And in a factory that is controlled that way, there's predictable quality you get as an output. Uh, well, that's the beautiful thing about the statistical process control. You see that something is about to fail and can take action immediately in order to stop the process. Werner, we know from the content of the uh, leaked contracts that the content of those contracts is incredible. I want to ask you for your professional experience. It says that the seller of the so-called vaccine, I just know the Pfizer stuff, but I know the others are similar, first cannot say whether the thing is effective, and politicians ex uh, claim that it's fully effective. Secondly, cannot say whether it's hazardous, whereas politicians say it's totally safe. Thirdly, that the vaccine also needs to be bought if alternative healing methods are available, of which we know that they do exist and that they're effective and that they're safe. And fourthly, that in the event of anything happening and there's a claim against the manufacturer, the uh, buyer indemnifies the manufacturer. Have you ever heard of any such a contract? Uh, somebody who somebody who signs that contract as a customer is mentally ill. Yes, that was my first statement. You must be crazy to sign that. And of course, that comes with liability questions. Because we're not the only ones who view it that way. There's a discussion on that on the internet. People have discussed it mainly with the American colleagues. And there are liability issues related with that. Politicians who are signing that are they're in for the loony bin. That's a contract which is obviously null and void. It breaches every single law. Once we had uh, a law on general business terms and provisions as part of the civil code, it's an incredible unilateral advantage to the supplier that offers the supplier every possibility and that takes away every possibility from the buying country. That is unethical, it's against the law, and it's against anything that any lawyer has ever learned. Well, liability issues are a civil code thing, but uh, criminal liability cannot be ruled out. It, anyway, it cannot be ruled out if it's a culpable intent. So anybody who, by willful and culpable intent, um, creates damage can never get out of criminal responsibility. And this is at least gross negligence when I look into it. And I think there's also a lawyer, the name of whom I've forgotten, who only just a few days ago stated that he indicted uh, the head of the RKI Institute, Professor Wieler, and others with the Federal Prosecution Office. And in that case, what I said, 
the one who has the criminal responsibility would have to prove that he worked according to the state of the art. And I would believe that it may come into effect. But didn't the Federal Prosecution Office refuse that case? It is a well-written report by a highly committed colleague, Tobias Ulbrich from Cologne, and we've also uh, heard about the answer. I got, I got a comment from a prosecutor whom I like, whom, whom I know, and uh, every trainee would do something that is better than what the German prosecutor general has done. It says in the end, no, we don't, don't see anything that's going wrong. And if anything has gone wrong by those so-called vaccinations, it's all coincidence. But that was not intended. Instead of going into the uh, examination, into prosecution, it's going to fall flat on the face. But it's a ridiculous approach that we have seen in so many different cases. Uh, it, it's uh, the, the cancellation of a case like so many other cancellation cases that are just ridiculous. The German prosecution office is just a tiger with no teeth. You can't re not really win a battle with them. Well, don't get your hands dirty. Nobody wants to have done it. Nobody wants to take the decision uh, to pull the House of Lies down. It will collapse. Herbert Ludwig said that. And then those people will be in. That's clear. So, in connection to what Mr. Ludwig has told us, my German um, school A paper said why it's important that the dem people in a democracy are informed about what's going on. That was actually, um, well, the teacher who thought of this had, had the same ideas, apparently, that we're having here now. Exactly. That, that was the title of my report to the European Council. It was called The Role of Media in the Function of Democracy. Werner, before we... Mr. Ludwig is back now by phone. <clears throat> so, before we come back to him briefly, you wanted to tell us about the possibility or probability of energy blackout in uh, autumn or winter. Yes, there's all sorts of rumors. And the brief answer is, usually we have enough capacity to generate enough current, electrical current, that is. And yes, there have been a few points where we are close to a blackout. But all those were either uh, extraordinary circumstances where somebody in one of the Balkan countries did something that was clearly against any rules of the IEC, the International Electric Technical Commission, how to stabilize the network, not the grid. We had it one or two years before. There was some uh, speculation by certain capacity buyers they were the problem. So from my point of view, we do not have a real supply problem. The only thing that might turn out to be a real problem is a failure of the Internet. Because as far as I know, the networking between all infrastructure 
depends heavily on the function of the internet. And if that were to collapse, then that would be a potential secondary effect. But in terms of capacity, I don't think there's such a risk. On the contrary, the statistics that I know says that over the last 10, uh, 15 years, with a higher share of renewable energies, that the grid as such has become more stable, because, amongst others, there are internet-based methods that were phased in for stabilizing the network, and that certain network management actions can be made more effectively and quicker. But regarding this uh, exercise on the uh, collapse of the Internet, well, something to be taken really seriously. And if you think about putting a solar panel upon your roof, there are two basic types. One only works when the grid is up and running, but for a little, up, for a little markup you can also get one that works that ensures uninterrupted power supply, which disconnects the whole system from the power grid, and then it works all by itself. The precondition is that you've got a battery to store it, but that makes more sense anyway. So I can only recommend people, if they're uh, afraid of uh, grid failure, to have a system on their roof, solar panel system on their roof, that can ensure uninterrupted power supply. I've installed something similar, and I know a bit of electric technology. And besides my normal system, I've got the possibility of at least keeping our fridges and the light alive. But without the storage, you won't get very far, will you? Well, this extra thing has, of course, a battery supply. And UPS is uninterrupted power supply. Well, what we're hearing about this fear of the blackout is something that you wouldn't see as real. It's something that is uh, pushed, or what is this? This film blackout, which uh, is uh, to be due in the cinemas. And there's this idea that it can be switched off, but there's no real basis for this, that, or that we lack capacity. It's just a panic. I think uh, if you look at the technical situation, production capacity and consumption, I don't see this being a real imminent risk. Anything can happen anywhere if uh, somewhere a large power line is cut or fails, then the grid may not respond quickly enough. I think it happened quite a number of years ago when Meyer shipyard moved a large vessel and they had to travel under a high power line and they had to disconnect that line for a moment and the people who were managing that messed it up and then there was a power failure in the Netherlands, Belgium, northern France and part of Germany where there was a blackout. But uh, regarding production capacity and all regulation mechanisms would not give us a problem. There are two risks, however. One is uh, electricity brokers might do uh, 
breakneck deals somewhere. There are also those forecasts about renewable energies from wind energy, solar power for the next one or two days. And if they rely on that too much and say, oh, okay, now I'll speculate on that, happened once, um, then all short-term availability that's just not designed for that would be fully exhausted and then it only just worked out because those power brokers, those speculation people did it. The current gas prices, I don't know, but uh, I think that's also a matter that is to do with a lot of speculation. I think it's speculation driven, but I'm not really an expert in that. But again, technically speaking, I do not see any imminent major risk or probability, no more than in the years before. But I do see a risk if there's an internet failure that might also make the power grid collapse. And for that case, I would recommend, well, even though it's not a high probability, one, sh one should not panic, one should do a minimum of provisions, such as some uh, fridges that you can still run. Well, the best thing would be that you get this uninterrupted power supply with your solar power panels with a large uh, power storage facility or something smaller that I have because we've got that roof system anyway and you can't change it. So what you should, what you should have, you should have some food, some water that you can store somewhere and uh, make sure that you've got some light, whatever the light be, be it battery driven or be it candles or a camping gas cooker, not too expensive, and a gas cartridge for cooking would not be a bad idea. At least that's what I've got at home, besides what I've described in terms of technical stuff. So we just put it somewhere and then you can just uh, relax. And I think there's a 95% probability I'm not going to use it. So what? It's good to have, nevertheless, to have the possibility. Well, apparently we have to consider everything, although I personally think we're going to turn the helm round, especially because, as Mr. Ludwig has pointed out now, the House of Lies is going to collapse. It's just a question of time, but we have everything, we've got to do everything possible to speed that up. It's going to be difficult, but anything is better than carrying on as we did in the past. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> Everybody should do something, be active as best as they can. I have one question, Professor Berkholz. In the beginning, you said of this first data where we can see. Um, can you send us that source? Of course, of course. Thank you. And partially it's available to Viviano as well, but I'm, I'm making a summary. I'd like to switch back to Mr. Ludwig. Mr. Ludwig, you're with us on the phone now, right? Computer, oder wo soll das passieren? Kann ich mir nicht vorstellen. Stern 6, 
They're just trying to figure out how to unmute. Apparently, Mr. Ludwig has not unmuted his phone. Mr. Ludwig, I think you are muted and you have to press asterisk deck six on the phone to unmute yourself. Oh. Okay, he kicked himself out. Anyway, I thought very interesting of what he said. Everything that I have read from him was very interesting as well. Maybe we will talk to him again. Things do develop and this way of uh, philosophical uh, guideline, I think is, it, uh, is very good for us. Right, now we had also planned Jim Bush for today, but he fell ill, but We'll, we'll get him. Yes, that's not the end of it. Um, just to say who he was, he is a former engineering and operations manager for infectious diseases research for the uh, uh, center at Colorado University and for vector-borne research uh, center for disease control in Fort Collins, Colorado. He was present at the dark winter exercise, which is what Joe Biden talks about all the time. He's been using that, using that all the time in June 2001. And he says, this is the roadmap that is being followed at the moment. So let's make sure this roadmap runs to a dead end road. <clears throat> Mr. Ludwig seems to be back. I can hear you now. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm clueless what's happening. I wanted to ask something concerning the um, justice system. In the US, we have the situation that in the states where in the state courts, other than in the federal courts, the judges are elected by the population. Would that be a possible idea to do that in the region? Of course, the people have to uh, elect their own, of course, trained judges. Oh, definitely, yes. I'd be very much in favor. It is something that I'd even call necessary if it can be taken completely out of the executive power. Yes, I think that's immediately clear. In your opinion, is the condition of the justice system, from my point of view, it's not new, it is just becoming very apparent now that this condition is unacceptable. Is that uh, this condition that you are observing, you've made a careful hint that the searching of homes of judges that only do their job is that something that can be repaired or do we have to set up a completely new system? I think the whole political system cannot be repaired. As I said initially, 
I, I think the solution to what we can witness, that is this intermingling of political and uh, economic interests that overwhelm and dominate science and medicine, that's often uh, depending on external funding from business, well, and then the dependency on, on others. I'm just reading a book by Dr. Reuter, who worked as a radiologist in various hospitals for 30 years, 23 years as a chief doctor. And he wrote a book called Der betrogene Patient, The Treated Patient. And he describes and documents quite clearly what financial interconnections there are between the pharmaceutical industry, the doctors, and medical science. And when you see how the whole education system is dominated by them through the curricula, through the education laws, dominated by those who have the power in the state, what they consider desirable, how to educate, how to train young people. In my view, all that cries for being separated into separate organizations, self-governing organizations, which would be guided by a legal framework. So that, that would mean quite something. If the courts were separated from the executive power, if judges were directly elected by the population, in my view, that would be part of it, like the health system is part of the cultural life in society. And the state would create a framework and prevent any infringement of the law. There are the three great slogans of the French Revolution, freedom, equality, brotherhood. And in today's states, they are in conflict. They eliminate each other. Where you've got freedom and equality comes in, then that uh, destroys freedom. And so these three slogans can only work and are only justifiable if uh, you apply them to a certain part of social life. It's clear, science, art, religion needs freedom. But the whole education system also needs freedom. So anything that happens in the education system is within the responsibility of those who are who have been trained for it and who have got the abilities, but not bureaucrats and politicians. 
And the state cannot work as a business enterprise. It started with uh, Dr. Vodak and what he said. 90% of the population uh, pay their mandatory health insurance. The state must not be a business enterprise. It's the task of business to supply people with what they need. And that's not the task of the state. Because the laws is what the state should be reduced to. There has to be equality before the law. And if the state does something as an entrepreneurial enterprise, if the state attracts the education system into its hands, then this part of the state, that is the, ex, uh, the, the, the equality, dominates over freedom and brotherliness in business life. Maybe I can comment on this. I am missing one perspective here. As this is all communication processes, that take place in society and that have to and that have to be successful to handle all these things. I think the capacity of our communication to handle this is very important. And if I just want to briefly explain this, I have the scheme here, which I always like to use. You see a resilient society which can compensate everything that happens, handle misleads, uh, then it depends on the people that uh, need to be transparent. People have to be the, be able to demo be democratically active. Society is very big and that's the size here it stands for. It gets more and more difficult and if that is even technically complex and it's difficult to understand all these issues then it gets more difficult even. So the size and complexity of a society limit resilience and uh, have a negative effect. Transparency is positive on resilience um, of the society and its stability. And this has to do with the R. R could be subsidiarity. So if we look at the processes that are necessary in our society to um, find democratic decisions and to find mistakes early on and we decide these in dimensions which are transparent enough and understandable enough we have a better chance of surviving and this discussion on the subsidiarity is something that I have been wanting for an institute, a big institute, a powerful institute, which can find out what function has to be assigned to what level of the society. So that means we subsidiarity research in a systematic way. That has to do with communication, with means to use communication that the self-regulation of the society can work in the long term. So I just wanted to 
make sure that this is important. It's something that I've been thinking of quite a while. And what we are going through is the use of, or the, yeah, making use of in transparency that people can do something on a global level that can take effect on a global level without us being able to understand and without understanding what we should do in order to get things right. And if you say the political system can't be repaired, as you've just said, then I think that we have to consider or think what's the political system that we want for the future. I think the model of a regional structure which is networked globally and that tolerates multitude with different approaches and models that this has the most best perspective on success but that's of course a mere wish and practically um, we have to combine the many different interests of the people that lead to conflicts that need to be solved but i think this federal structure that we do have in germany actually is something that we have to reassess and to uh, wonder whether that's not much more important than we think. Um, not Rhine-Westphalia would be too big, but Schleswig-Holstein or Bremen or maybe Hesse, um, there are states that are understandable. You know the players, you know the uh, industry, you know the right, the legal system. So that can be made transparent. And of course, the media have to be getting respective rules and be made functional so that all of this still works. But we well, think we live in times where all of this is breaking down that has been created over the past and that it became what it did depend is because we have a subsystem in our society which can communicate very easily globally and that's the economic system that is much easier much less complex than all the other systems are it just looks for black and white figures and that's it and that's understandable all over the world and there's immediate feedback so this system can grow massively uh, on account of the other systems and this is where we come back to the point that the economy has to be stopped it has to be slowed down that it has to um, be um, made put into its place as one single subsystem of our society. Maybe this goes a little far, but I think it's important to consider these aspects. If we think about developing a new society, never un underestimate the size and uh, it has to be kept up right in the front and uh, make it the basis for the further discussion on how to design a society. The intransparency that we can see in business, in this monstrous so-called financial industry. I mean, financial industry is, a, is an uh, erroneous notion. I mean, they're not producing anything. They're just uh, tricksters. Well, I once played for one of those players. Uh, that intransparency is intended. It's not that it just happened by coincidence, such as so ever bigger structures generating ever bigger bureaucracies. No, that is intended. And that's why nobody understands how the financial industry that is hidden behind everything that we're talking about uh, and about all the, 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 the problems, nobody understands them anymore. And the easy thing is to go back to regional approaches. That's also what you meant by subsidiarity, Wolfgang. 
that one really focus on these structures that you can create yourself in your own region, in an area that you can overview and not by hoping that the big finger comes from above, not from God, but it comes from your replacement God, from the financial industry or from the uh, World uh, Health Organization or whatever. We need to create our completely own structures. That is why it's my big wish that um, we invite Sabine Lange next time. We got uh, the community um, lately that has many players already and that is, aims exactly at this and uh, that wants to develop regional structures that are democratic and that provides many functions that we need in every day. I think this is a fantastic idea and there is lots of uh, smart people working in this and um, it'd be good to present it here, I think. I think we can do that, yeah. Uh, I think it, it turns out that a crisis can be an opportunity as well. New things are emerging that allow people to participate and this idea of taking action oneself is certainly something that will happen in many other areas, such as we here, where we created the committee and went into this question. And that has also created quite a bit, globally speaking or locally speaking, but globally speaking too. Also globally, a lot of things came about this and we have to make this clear uh, to these uh, people that keep on writing the newspapers. if they rely on structures which are the authorities from their point of view, the WEF and the WHO and, uh, or, or, and the people in the background of these, then WEF uh, and WHO are private invention. We are as well, but we do things, they don't. They just break things. Can Mr. Ludwig, could one actually if there is this request for transparency which is necessary to be able to find the right decisions can that be said put as simple as that it's best to work in small units in the region starting with it with that type of democracy oh certainly certainly and the notion of democracy probably needs some more definite analysis, whether it's in all spheres of life that you can create democratic decisions, be it uh, regionally and smaller economic entities, be it in the education system, I don't think that you can always decide democratically because a democratic decision um, would exclude the freedom of the people who are qualified in that area and that's a problem. I envisage a totally different form of cooperation and decision taking that is necessary. different from what you have in a democratic state under the rule of law. 
in a democratic state, under the rule of law, you need democratic votes in order to decide uh, on laws and regulations, be it through a referendum, be it through uh, representative parliaments. However, when the state is doing some regulation of the of business life through laws or of education or of culture that means it eliminates the freedom of the experts working in these areas they need to join in joint forces horizontally in order to find the right agreements on what has to happen further. But condition for this is that, how can I say, this is decent people. What we have in the current economic structures, especially in the financial industry, that's not decent people. In my experience and my opinion, these are criminals. Yes, of course. But that's also what you have in politics, where you've got the elite of the worst and uh, that's also because of the incentives that the financial system offers and that's supported by the state it's incentives for those people and those are details to address as to um, how to eliminate such incentives well uh, there are some organization where a democratic approach is uh, difficult if the goal is defined what to deliver and reach if i am a company for example that is democratically organized then probably i'm hopeless beyond the competence uh, competition so i think in that case hierarchical structures would be better if it is not uh, something to develop new ideas, then that's different. Then you don't know what the outcome is. But if you want to produce something, it does make sense to decide, decide and design structures that delegate this and have reporting systems to handle the errors. That's a machine which um, can be designed and not each decision in that uh, a decision to be taken uh, in a democratic process would take too long. We have to make sure that we can't question democracy completely and say in some areas we don't need it. Um, this has been done by Mr. Habeck for a couple of times now, saying that the Chinese model, which is completely undemocratic, that this is um, superior to our democracy because the decisions from the top can be implemented quicker. That's what we don't want by no means. That would be the model of Germany Inc. Well, of course, that is not what I was referring to. Um, what we see in China, we see total state which rules out every areas of life from top down. Or at least they try. Um, yes, they do try so, but um, in a large part they are successful. And I think that if, for example, we look at the economic life, what this is about, it is about producing, producing goods and services, uh, trade, and the sale and consumption. And instead of state 
or hierarchical structures. There should be institutions that um, join up people from all three areas, people from production, people from trade and consumers. We are all consumers in the end. And these should come together and then the people should get to know the different perspectives and the different needs and interests and then they should try to compensate and balance off these different interests um, and that should lead to agreements agreements as to what extent the producers uh, can find out what demand uh, there is that they need to satisfy and that can be this this needs to be done regionally or split up or broken down regionally <clears throat> and in that case things will start happening on a basis of equality trying to reach at agreements which are based of course on expert knowledge and these control the economic soap processes avoiding over and under production by having a certain agreement on possible pricing in that way but we can't have a majority decisions for that because that would exclude the experts or overrule the experts yes i understand what you're getting at i always think the eu is a bureaucratic monster especially when they interfere with business and with agricultural businesses it's totally besides the point people think still think about the butter mounts and eu regulations according to the curvature of bananas or useless stuff or the production of certain cheese types was regulated uh, forbidden because it's against i don't know whatever bureaucratic monster regulation i think that's what you have in mind that in the end it's the market and the experts to decide but not people with the wrong incentives to irritate them but the market should be managed by qualified people yes and the same applies for the education system here we need the experts who set up their self-governing system creating bodies that agree what needs to be done beyond the individual school uh, for the society as a whole coordination which is necessary <clears throat> yes i think there's still quite a lot of thoughts to be followed those are great incentives They're allowing us to think in the right direction and now with you mr ludwig i really enjoyed that great uh, i think I'm, I'm strong, I strongly rely on the swarm and I think that if you're well informed, many people can 
come to a certain or con make a contribution it doesn't need to be full expertise and it's not also very clear at the moment that the people who are experts at the moment uh, have considered everything that uh, may emerge in a more transparent uh, approach so i think there are quite a few things that one could question here but i think it's absolute right to make use of the expertise um, and use the wisdom of the crowd as well and not just uh, preset things that have been dealt out in the uh, behind closed doors so i think we'll have to go into that and uh, think it forward for us and for everything and the great uh, approach a uh, first great approach uh, is that thing with the uh, um, with the corporate i think it is uh, working together yes that is one thing one thing which for the last decades has become almost forgotten it's a fundamental problem that we're having it's the human approach being pushed backwards more and more for the benefit of an inhumane or transhumane digitization. We don't want that and we're going to resist it with all our forces. Okay, in that sense. Mr. Ludwig, it was a pleasure again. I hope we can call you again. Yes, of course, uh, I'd be happy. And I hope that the technical issues will be solved by then. Well, we managed them. But uh, to finish off with, I want to congratulate you that you. What's your what's what's your motto? I am. Therefore, I think that um, you have put that right uh, from heads to top. I I think. Therefore, I am is completely wrong. And the way you said I. Um, and therefore I think is the right way around. Thank you. It was Vivian's idea. Okay. Right. So we wish you a nice weekend, Mr. Ludwig. Same to you. I keep my fingers crossed for you. Yes. And all of us, we've got one video which we like to show and it shows um, with a number of graphs showing that actually the so-called COVID sicknesses have only started by injecting the spike protein into the body with some other substances that started it all that is um, convincing you don't have to study medicine or law for that thank you well, i think we'll say goodbye before the video right next week will be interesting, eventful. We are going to keep everybody informed. It's going to be interesting. Thanks for viewing. I hope you'll have a nice weekend. And we're looking forward to donations. That's always a topic I know. Well, putting money in our pockets, we don't comment this uh, stupid thing. We are doing a lot of things. This is being uh, translated simultaneously. There's two people um, who um, translate all of this into the English that the international community can 
uh, hear it. Uh, nobody bought a Ferrari and nobody wants to do that because we are not, this is not our value. Exactly. And we don't earn, any, earn anything from the committee. So we're clean. Right. And, well, against the background, we're looking forward to further donations for funding the committee. And we've also found a possibility of transcribing our videos. There's a software development that we can access and we can do it. And that will approach or that will appeal to even more people in Germany or worldwide. And we're also looking forward to that and we're happy. And Oval Media are also supporting us in technical terms. So have a nice Friday evening, a quiet weekend and then see you next week. Bye bye.